So he was questionable for a while. Uh, no, he's on the roster today. 68, and he is strong. Bandage it up and let's go. Dixon's punt travels to the 47. And Harris with a little wiggle. And there he goes! Deontay Harris! Gonna take it the distance! Sorry about that. I was looking up to see what number episode this is. It's season nine, episode number 18 of the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett, coming to you live from Buffalo, New York. It is 3.36 a.m. Thursday going into Friday. I had a late interview tonight with Jeff Perlman, and I just can't wind down. I was planning on finishing this up and putting it up tomorrow afternoon, Friday afternoon. But I'm awake anyway. I figured bang it out put it up. People can listen to it on their way to work or whatever if they'd like to do that. Uh, Last week, Conrad Thompson was on the podcast and I got a lot of feedback on uh, the Conrad Thompson interview. It was really cool to have him on. It was nice of him to do it. His show, The Arn Show, did premiere this week, like he said, on the 24th, which is exactly when he told us it would premiere. Really great interview. It's really a business interview. Even if you don't love wrestling, but you're interested in podcasts and the business of it, I think you'll like that. Go ahead and check it out. We also had Adrian Dater on the podcast. We talked a little hockey with him. Here's what we're doing today. We have two interviews for you. Albert Chen is on the podcast today. Really interesting thing about Albert. He was on this podcast in 2012. Now, his book is part of the book club, and we've been promoting it on the podcast and I, I was saying, I think last week, I'm like, I don't know, Albert's maybe been on, maybe he hasn't, I'm not sure. So I searched my email and found out that he was on in 2012. And I talked to Albert when we recorded the interview and I said, did you know you were on? And he's like, yeah, I remember. Uh, so it's a really cool interview with him about his book. And I guess I'll put that second, even though it's the shorter of the two, I'll put that second so it follows the book club. And to start off the show, we'll lead with Jeff Perlman. Uh, Jeff is a longtime friend of this podcast. He's been on many times. Uh, He's the author of uh, nine incredible sports books. Uh, Well, eight have been released. Uh, His ninth is done uh, being written. It's in the editing stages. He'll talk about that uh, in the interview. And he's writing a proposal for a tenth. He tweeted that today. Uh, So Jeff Perlman is going to be on, and we just talk about everything. He didn't have a book to promote, per se, so we just went off like we do. Jeff has been on many times, and sometimes he's on for a book, and sometimes he's just on to shoot the shit with me, and people seem to really like that. Uh, Jeff and I are different people, but we really have a respect for each other, and we talked about all kinds of things, from politics to sports to raising our kids to movies to We just went all over the map, and I think it's a really fun interview, so we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, So Jeff and I, Jeff Perlman, Albert is on the podcast as well, and um, we're going to do one last thing. 
I want to tell you a story about my iPhone, which I've ordered, the new iPhone. And I also want to talk a little bit about my brother, Greg, uh, who had a, a birthday in September. Um, and we, I did one last thing for my brother, Anthony, around his birthday. I didn't get to it yet for Greg, so I want to do that for sure. So there's a lot to do, a lot of ground to cover. Jeff Perlman is here. Uh, let's get to that. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to come back uh, with a really great friend of the program, one of the fan favorites, Jeff Perlman. Our first guest today is a sportscaster's legend who needs little, if any, introduction. He is our good friend, Jeff Perlman. What's up, Jeff? What is this? Uh, am I now? So where do I rank now? Oh, my God. You are in the top. All-time, uh... You're in the top three or four. I mean, I kind of stopped. Top three or four. Yeah. So one thing I know for sure is that Jenkins did 20 and is frozen at in that number because he's not doing it anymore now that he's with the Clippers. He's not doing it anymore. Yeah. Over. So he's frozen at that number, I think. Plus, like, the, <laughs> I always tell people kind of the dirty secret was, like, kidding him to do, like, 18, 19, and 20 was tough because I think he was kind of over it. I think he's kind of like, why do I keep doing this show? Um, but, yeah. um, and then Deitch has been on a lot. You've been on a lot. And Wertheim and Passen. That's probably, like, the top five. You know, Deitch, um, I guess Deitch to do my podcast a while ago. I've known Deitch for years and years. I worked with him at SI, and he agreed. And then he was like, yeah. He's like, I, you know, I got nothing really exciting to say. Really? And, uh, so you got Deitch, and I could not get Deitch. Yeah, I don't know. Wow. There was, not, there was nothing, uh, just to be clear, there was nothing jerky about it. I right. was upset. Right. Uh, I love that guy. He just felt like I don't have anything to say right now. And I was like, that's cool. I don't care. I'm surprised. I think you guys could have a really interesting conversation. I always have fun with him. He's kind of been a oh, little. Oh, we've bit, had many. Yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, he's been a bit of a mentor to me over the years. I, you know, we've been through a lot together, him and I, and our little weird yeah. relationship on the internet. So, yeah. um, had you on his show? Yes, he did. That was my idea. That whole show was my idea. So he's nice enough to do the idea yeah, and have me on it. Cool. Yeah. Um. So that he's really never had me on. that raised ahead of me. <laughs> that you got to send him an idea, I guess. That really raised my profile, and so yeah. did the Quaz. You should see me. Like, I can barely walk in Buffalo. They're all like, oh, that's the guy that was on the Quaz. <laughs> I stopped doing the Quaz for a while. I oh, no. Quaz in a while. I oh, no. Well, I'm glad I got in. I'm glad I did when I got break. in when I did. That would have been devastating yep. if you're you like. Missed the, uh, missed... Here's the funniest thing about my yep. Quaz. You shut down the Quaz. I did. <laughs> you were like, there's nowhere else to go. We've gone everywhere there is to go. There's, yeah. there's no real reason. Hit a low. Yeah. Hit a low. low. Oh, low. 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 We can go. I was going the other way. I was saying it was a high, but um, yeah, right. <laughs> the 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 funniest thing I get like that I got the most from people was, so who do you think it was that said who the fuck is Steve Bennett? And so this is my theory because I've asked you to tell me off the record and you won't. Oh, and, and because of that, I'm pretty sure it was just you just writing a question. I think nobody said that to you. Like I'm, Correct. I'm fairly certain nobody. I swear to God. Yeah, nobody. I'm not gonna tell you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was dead on there. That's why I told my mom because my mom was really upset, and she, I'm like, Mom, nobody said that. He just wrote a question pretending someone said that. Why was she upset? Well, I don't know. I guess she thought she felt like Wait, the was... person was being mean to me that said that. 
She's a mom, you know. She's irrational. I mean, she's irrational. She's a mom. Someone started a some someone started a Twitter account called Jeff. Pro, uh, the line was Jeff Perlman is a cackling douchebag, <laughs> and I told my mom, and she thought it was funny. That's <laughs> you know. uh, funny. It's funny. I can't believe someone did that. I can believe yeah. someone did that though, because your whole Twitter profile is just you fight you. with people all day long on Twitter. I don't know how I you. Say that. I don't I'm know how you do it. it. I don't know how you do it. But no, I don't know. thank it's you. A good distraction. Thank you so much for having me on the class. It was really fun. I I wish I would have known you yeah, weren't good. You were. Work. I wish I would have known you weren't going to edit it. I would have looked them all over and fixed the typos and stuff. I I sent it off. Like, oh, were there a lot of typos? Yeah, three or four. But like when I read them, they they bother yeah, the shit right. out of me. You know what I mean? Like I see them and I'm like, Argh! you know. But I don't know. I, I email me the typos. I'll fix them. I did it in bed on my iPhone. It took me like an hour because I was like, like six times I deleted something. I'm bad. I was kind of overthinking it sometimes. Um. Yeah. And. Uh, so then, by by the time I was done, I was like, I can't look at this anymore. I got to send it off, or I'm going to change something. And um, yeah, I yeah, understand. yeah. But um, okay. So we can talk about the the Lakers book because we've talked about that on here before. What's the status? What's the progress? Where are you at on Lakers book number two? Uh, it is going through first. It just got actually just got the edits back. And I have about two weeks. I have a fact checker I'm hiring tomorrow to go through, you know, and fact check it. I'm trying to find someone who covered the team who's not involved anymore to sort of read it over and just give me a, you know, I like, like when I did um, the Walter Payton book, Don Pearson was a longtime Chicago Tribune Bears writer, but he wasn't in the business anymore. And I asked him if he would read over the book and it was invaluable. So when I can, I try to get someone who is very, very familiar with the material to go over it and just if anything jumps out, you know, so that's kind of where I am right now. Do you remember like something big he helped you with, like a specific example of how that strategy paid off? There wasn't anything, um, there wasn't anything monumental. It was like little things, actually. It would be like uh, maybe you have the relationship between two players off or maybe your description of the way that guy played wide receiver was off, little tiny things. But like one thing I've learned through the years with these books is um, you know, sports fans, they're, they can be a unique breed. And if you have little tiny things wrong about a team, they jump all over you. Rightly so. I mean, you should be authoritative. So, you know, like the, uh, the 86 Mets book has a glaring, glaring error that I heard about a gazillion times when the book came out. And I sort of learned from that, that you just can't have these little screw ups. So it's important to have guys like that. They don't fix that. Like that can't possibly be in. Like if I were to buy the Mets book now on like Apple Books, that mistake has changed by no, now. It's right? fixed. Yeah, it's fixed. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was talking. Yeah, I'll tell you what it is. It yeah. Was, um... Oh, go ahead. No, I Why was not? just gonna. I was just gonna say about that that I was talking to Jane Levy on the show. Um, I guess almost yeah. a year ago now. Good she... dropping. Yeah. She well, she's the first lady of the sportscasters. She's my girl. Um. She told me she was getting crushed on because she made a mistake about the brand of the watch that Babe Ruth got or something. It was something real, like a real tiny, tiny thing. And the New York Times, it was the New York Times review of it. It was like, yeah, it was a good book, but. And they focused on that and really crushed her on that. And she was like, well, yeah, you know, 
it's on me. I, I screwed it up there, right, to do that. I thought it was a little harsh. Kind of missed the point, but I guess, you know, like I said, she's the first lady of the sportscaster, so I'm here to stick up for her, I guess. Well, you know what? She told me something on my podcast. I had her on, and uh, she's great. She's a star. No yeah. doubt about it. Cool person. She told me she does not hire a fact checker, and I um, I was blown away by that. Like, I was truly blown away by that, that she does her own fact checking. And I just think, like, when you write something and you look at it a million times and a million times and a million times, your eyes start to start to gloss over things. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's invaluable. Yeah, it costs a couple of thousand bucks. It's not, you don't love giving away the money, whatever. But it's kind of invaluable to have someone go through it with a comb, go to whatever, in this case, basketballreference.com, make sure Shaq was averaging this many points per game, make sure Blazers' record was this, make sure Babe Ruth's watch was this. Like, those things are important. So I mean, I'm not criticizing her. She's tremendously good. Um, but, you know, I was surprised when she said that. How like so? Explain to me the pro, the the fact checking a little bit. So, say you hire someone, you say it's a couple of thousand dollars. That's close enough. That's fine. I'll accept that. Um, what if they miss something? What if they? It what sucks. if the fact checker but I, um, doesn't? They always do, and that's just part of the service. Like, hey, we'll fact check as best we can, but it's just impossible. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a perfect game thrown in biography writing. Like, if it's a real biography, I'm not just talking about some 50-page quickie. Okay. Like a Jane Levy kind of biography or Jonathan Ig biography, Seth Davis, like those kind of books. It is impossible to throw a perfect game. It's just impossible. So I've never, every book I've written, every book I've written, there have been mistakes. I know it. I know it when I'm writing it. I'm not happy about it. You try to make it as perfect as possible. But it's really, really hard, you know? It's just freaking, it's a lot of numbers and it's a lot of figures and it's a, a lot of stories and, and sometimes you're dealing with one person tells you one thing and someone else tells you the exact opposite. So, uh, yeah, I just, you, you know, I hired a, I had a great fact check over the last few books and I would say the guy caught was 98%, which is pretty freaking good. That's so interesting to me because I always think of this quote from Al Michaels. He, did you used to read those playboy interviews? Those are like the, Besides the boobs, those are like the best thing about that magazine. Yeah, those are great. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, and he said something, and because I have one, I have like a bunch of the the ebooks of like they're just collections of the interviews, and they're like grouped by different themes. Yeah. And Al Michaels said something like, "I'm always chasing the perfect game as an announcer, but it's impossible." And ever since I read that, I, whenever I'm watching, I always hear a mistake. And I'll think like, oh man, there's the perfect game gone for like I was watching the football game before, and um, Aaron Jones scored a touchdown, and Buck's like, Aaron Jones scores his second touchdown in the night, but it was his third, second rushing. He had one receiving that Buck must have forgot about. And I was like, oh man, he, if he was going for a perfect game, he just lost it there. You know, like I'm always it's funny. And I asked, um, oh my god, you already made fun of me for name dropping once, but I asked Kenny Albert about that a couple weeks ago, and he's like, yeah, he's like. <laughs> He's like I miss him. I I I you know catch stuff all the time. But yeah, I guess that's a book thing too. Yeah. I never thought of it. Yeah, and people are so into catching it. But like, I'm not. Um... Oh, well, see, I had this talk. It's funny. I'll name drop. I actually did talk today. So Jonathan I who wrote that Ali biography is uh, he's a really good friend of mine. I feel like. I feel like I formed like these, like this bond with five or six biography, mainly sports biography writers. 
and uh, we talk about these things. And I was talking to him today, and I was saying how, um, how, like Walter Payton was a good example. You, you go on Amazon, and inevitably, inevitably, someone will write in the review. They'll give them like give you like two stars or one star, and they'll say like nothing new here. I'm sure every book I've written, someone has written a review saying nothing new here, old material. And you want to be like, I said this to him today. I was like, you can say the writing sucks. You can say it's not a topic you care about, but nothing new here. Like I interviewed 700 people, nothing new here. So <laughs> not one always, it, it's just like preposterous, like, like nothing new. Seriously, nothing new. I just told, I mean, I, give me a break. I told you I was out of wedlock kid. Nobody even knows that. Nothing new, a million different things. So, um, there's always somebody. It, I mean, it doesn't matter. It comes with any profession. If you're a waitress, there's always someone who's going to say you didn't bring the food fast enough. If you're a garbage man, there's always someone who's going to say you didn't put the lid back on. Like, we all have our criticisms. But with stuff like this, it's a tiny bit more public. Um, and sometimes it's not. Yeah, that's my dog. Yeah. Sorry Mine's that. sleeping. That's all right. Uh, you know what's really tricky for me, too, is... So, I often get the first prints of a book because... You know, I'll reach out. I see something's coming out. I'll reach yeah, out. You guys want to be right, and they they send them out. And when I catch something, I feel yeah. really awkward about it. Like I always debate: should I say something? Has yeah. someone already said this to him seventy times? Like I had this guy, and this is probably yeah. isn't a name drop because he's not that famous. But this guy wrote this amazingly cool book about the last six weeks of David Letterman shows, and he went like show by show and told the story yeah. of the show. And one of the last shows, Eddie Vedder was on. And he wrote that. Oh yeah, you love your Pearl Jam. Yeah, and he and I know their history very well. And he wrote in there that, um, Eddie Vedder first appeared with, on the show with Pearl Jam in 1996. But he had been on the year before. I don't know if you ever seen this, but I guess there's a running gag on the show that, um, Dave was doing the do 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 part of Black like a lot. And then I guess the who was the ball guy, this band guy? I can't think of his name. Uh, Paul Schaefer. Schaefer, yeah. Schaefer. He he reached out to Vetter and Vetter like just walks out and like sings the last verse of Black and does that and walks away. So that was the first time he was on. I remember debating for like like a week, like should I tell him that he's wrong or you know like because I didn't want to come off like an asshole. And the other time it was happened, David Shoemaker is a really cool dude who works for Ringer now. Doesn't write that much anymore, but he used to write these unbelievable. Yeah wrestling um columns for deadspin uh and then he wrote a book about the history of wrestling and he had this small small mistake where he said something was in wrestlemania 9 but it was in wrestlemania 7 like it could have easily just been a typo <laughs> too not even a mistake you know what i mean but i'm a nerd i knew it was seven i'm like oh do i tell something? him i did say something to him off the podcast so i didn't like say it on the pod like embarrass him or something and he's like yeah a couple people have mentioned that it sucks yeah. we're gonna fix it you know and the, but the other guy actually with the with the Eddie Vedder thing was super grateful. He was like, "Oh my god, I didn't, you know, I didn't know that." And he like watched the clip on, um, on YouTube and wrote me an email. I was like, "Oh, that was really cool. Thanks for pointing that out." And you know what's really interesting about that guy? He's a big fan of the Mastiff Tigers, like an Ohio, Ohio high school football team. Like he doesn't even live no. there anymore, and he like goes to all their games. I don't. Know, it's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting oh, that's about that. I don't mind. Uh... What would you do? I don't mind people pointing out mistakes. You don't mind it? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to ask you that. Like, what if no, I read one I, in your book? What would you want me to do? I mean, if you told me now that I had an error in the USFL book, 
I think I'd be annoyed. I'm okay. just being honest. I'd be right. emotionally annoyed because it's like, well, kind of too late for that now. Right. You know? Yeah. But if it's like, if it's out in hardcover and it's not out in paperback yet, that's cool. I got no problem with that. I mean, the thing is, we're, but we're all like this. Like, I, uh, I, I like playing the victim, but I'm not really any different. Like, for some reason, we take a certain pleasure in pointing out mistakes. You know, or like, I'll give you a perfect example. Today, Bleacher Report today ran a, uh, it got a lot of grief online. They ran a list of the top 50 players. Bleacher Report's the top 50 NBA players of all time. Did you see this? By yes, I saw your Twitter, uh, your tweets too. Holy crap. Yeah. It was the worst, it was <laughs> the worst list ever. I mean, truly, truly uninformed, ignorant, stupid, like made no sense. A lot of things. I mean, I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom how bad it was. Right. And I kind of took pleasure in saying that. Like I actually took pleasure in me. Like there's something in a weird way, kind of enjoyable in being like, this list sucks. Or, Oh, I saw that error on page 28 or blah, blah, blah. So I'm no different than anyone else. I guess I just don't like it when it happens to me. I know very little about basketball, but I'm curious. Was it Jordan or LeBron was number one on the list? That was Jordan. Was okay, Jordan. Right. and Jordan probably has to be one. Yeah, it was Jordan Malone. I know. But I would have had. Uh, I always say I always put Kareem number one over over either of them. Really? Yeah, I know very little about basketball, but I feel like yeah. I I have the this like opinion that can't be beaten that Jordan's number one. You know, like I'm so into that opinion, but yeah, I mean, really, I don't know. I don't know anything about basketball. I think I watch. Also, the funny thing is, there's no answer to the question. There's no actual answer. You know what I mean? Like right. people are like, "How can you do it?" Right. Like, there's actually no answer. There's no. It's like seeing a movie and debating what happened after the movie ended to the characters. Like, there's no answer because they're fictional characters. So, what? Have fun. You know what's one I always wonder about is if Pink played his senior year of football. I always want to know if he did or not. You know what I'm talking about? Dazed and confused. Oh uh, yeah, I don't know. I do actually. Yeah, I always yeah. wonder. I'm like, um, I wonder if he played or not. And my theory is just that the the allure of a state title in Texas and high school football, there's no way they let the quarterback not play a senior year. If they were really that legitimate of a state title contender, I think he played. I think they say, fine, don't sign the thing, pretend like you did, just shut up and play. What do you think? Yeah, probably so. Being Texas, being Texas, right? And yeah. you know what else I always wonder is if Ricky ever got parole from the Skid Row song, 18 in Life. Like, I wonder if he's still in jail or if he <laughs> got parole, you know? Because by now, I mean, that yeah, came out in 89. He got stabbed in jail. You think he died in jail? Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, he got stabbed with a shank. He was just yeah. a kid, you know? I feel bad. I feel bad for Ricky. <laughs> Ricky was a yeah. young one. Yeah. yeah that, that, nice, that, nice reference. That yeah. child blew a child away. But it was, you know, I don't know. It's a good song. Yeah, oh yeah, I love I love Sebastian, one of my favorite singers. It's amazing. He's actually Wait, you know I never um I I feel like I want to share with you real quick okay. my Pearl Jam Black story. Oh, I nice. my Pearl Jam Black story. I love Black. You might have, but do it again yeah. anyway, even if you didn't. Uh, oh, did I share it with you? Already? I don't know. I I'll know when you tell it, but I feel like you may have told me a Pearl Jam Black right, story, so, but I'm not sure. Oh, uh, maybe I did. I was um I really liked Black, the song by Pearl Jam. I thought it was a great song. Mm. And when I was in college, I was at my uh, my friend Paul Sadaka was a uh, he was in a uh, fraternity at the University of Delaware in Pi Lambda Phi, and they were the worst fraternity on campus. Like <laughs> they were like, I mean, it's not fair, but you know, at the time they were like quote unquote the losers, and they oh, got wow. like 
nobody wanted to go to their parties and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if you wanted to get the, if you want to hook up with the hot girls, you went to a tie de- Tau Delta party, but you know, I went to the pilot of five parties. Anyway, it was in a basement and, um, I ended up hooking up with a girl with really, really bad acne and I was super drunk and I remember dancing with her on the floor and she just had the worst acne ever. And black was playing by Pearl Jam. Yeah, you so did dancing tell me on the this. floor, <laughs> hooking up with this girl. Yeah, yeah, it's but amazing. It scarred me from black forever. <laughs> oh, it's too bad. I have a good black so, story. You want to hear? I actually just went into the garage so my daughter wouldn't hear that story. <laughs> you have a black story? Yeah, I do. Um, I was I went. Right. I've been to eighty three shows. Okay, so if anyone ever asked me what's your favorite show, the one I always say is my favorite is they played at this place called Benaroya Hall in Seattle. It's a really small place on a college in the city. It was like a benefit for uh, homeless kids or something called Youth Care. And we only went because it sold out in 30 seconds, but I was in college at the time, and I was like, I'm just going to try and get tickets when they go on sale at 10 o'clock. They sold out in 30 seconds, but I you know, just hit enter at the right time at Ticketmaster. I got a pair, so we went. But um, So that night, they played Black, and you know there's that part. Actually, I think I was just talking about it. That part where um, you know, I know someday you had a beautiful life, like that part. So they were talking. Yeah, 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 so they were talking. Well, Ed was talking all night about how people were like warning them about the room and how if you make a mistake there, like you can't get away with it. And um, Stone, I know, made a mistake and they kind of like made a joke about it. And he's like talking about it. So then when they get to that part, like right before, he's like, all right, you try it. You try it. Feel the room. And, you know, everyone in the audience, maybe like 1,500 people or whatever sang that part and it was really really good everyone stayed on key did it really good really great and then you know mike mccready plays his solo so then i would always brag about that to people like when the cd came out i would play for people oh you got to hear me sing black i would i sang it at the program real dorky shit but then so then i'm reading this article actually in a crohn's monthly that i get and mike mccready was on the cover because mike mccready has crohn's too and he was talking about how they had recently played a show in seattle a benefit show and how they played black and the crowd sang black and how he took the energy from the crowd singing it and he felt the energy go through him and out of his hands when he played the solo and how he thinks it's like his best black solo ever. And I don't know, I just felt really honored by that. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. because of you. Well, all of us collectively, the twelve hundred people that were there. But yeah. That was a great show. And you know what Is that else? a top 30 Pearl Jam song? It's probably my number one. Wow. Yeah, like most Pearl Jam fans are either black people coming? or alive people. Like usually your number one yeah. in a lot of cases is usually black or alive. Um, and I'm more of a black person than an alive person. Um, but yeah, no, I love um, it. Isn't that, wait, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Isn't that kind of... Isn't that kind of an indictment of Pearl Jam that you're saying that their two best songs are off the first album, so it's all been downhill from there? Um, yeah, I guess you could you could say that, but I mean, my top ten, which is all very very close. Like me and my brother, we exchange every Christmas. We exchange post-it notes with our top five Pearl Jam songs, and mine's almost never the same every Christmas, and they're from all yep. the eras. So I, you know. That's just, it's tough because you've been with that one for 30 years, you know, then you, if they, you know, like I really love Sirens from the last record in 2013, but I've still only been with that one for six years. Hmm. 
you know, I've been with Black for 30. Interesting. Is his voice as good now as it was in 1992? Probably not as good, but it does hold up. You know, it's funny because in the yeah. um, in the uh, quads, you wrote something like about how they're a failing band or something, and I was like, and I was, and people were mentioning yeah, that. Yeah, I knew you were kidding, but people would, you know, who don't know you or whatever, would say that to me, and I was like, well, I'm like, even if he's not kidding, I'm sure every band would love to fail by playing. Like, I think last summer they played nine sold out stadiums. Yeah, of course. So they're still playing stadiums, so yeah. I don't know they could be failing but um how did we get to all that well, yeah, i just want to say you know what's crazy is um you know my favorite group of all time is hall and Oates, and uh and uh you know what i was gonna I say hall you, i would have been wrong here. what do you think i hold on what yeah. do you think i was gonna say your favorite band was i would have been wrong i you say hall i i was gonna guess blind melon no i was gonna guess blind melon but yeah i love blind melon yeah. but um no okay. sorry hall and Oates is my all-time favorite and uh all in two years ago played uh they played back to back nights at Staples Center and sold the place out. Which I thought considering they're in their seventies, it's pretty freaking amazing. Yeah, that's badass. Do they still do they play? They yeah, sing? they were not good though. No, do they play it live though or do they yeah, play they the do. tracks? No, they play it live. Okay, play, awesome. I mean, I'll take band, but they're not that good anymore. I will take that over playing the tracks any day. I'd rather, you know, see someone actor you know like i saw sammy hagar this summer and he's shockingly in his 70s he's still very very good yep. and i also seen bad company this summer and paul rogers is also in his 70s also very very good amazing how good those two guys sound for their voice wow. then there's a guy like vince neal who was never that great anyway. Paul McCartney. yeah he's still very very good yep. too yeah i saw him like six years ago maybe 2012 something like that we saw him at dodger stadium it was pretty amazing, and um, it's not like his voice is what it was, but it wouldn't be. He just um, he puts on a great show, and you feel like you're seeing something. Like I said to my wife, I was like, "We're actually he might be the biggest act alive." If it, you think about the the hugeness of the Beatles, it feels he might historic. Be the act alive, right? It, it feels really cool. historic. It's a Dodger Stadium, yeah. When you're yeah, there, right. and then Ringo came out, which was amazing. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah I always love those moments. It's like it the fun. the cell phone debate at concerts. Like, people get really down. And I'm always like, you know what? I'm for it. And the reason I'm for it is because when I was younger, I would hear, like, oh, yeah, you know, um, Elton John came out at the Guns N' Roses show uh, on Tuesday. And they played November Rain. I'm like, oh, that probably was really cool. But you've never seen it. You know, now if that happens, you get to watch it. It's awesome. You know, so I'll take a guy with a camera in front of me for a couple seconds to know that that footage exists. And actually, like in the Pearl Jam community, we're so crazy yeah. that people will periscope the whole concert. Like the last tour, I watched every pretty much every concert I wasn't at on my couch. You know, people just live streaming it on Periscope or whatever, or Facebook Live, one of the two. It beats spending. It beats. It beats buying some bootleg at a flea market for twenty bucks. Well, that's what I used to do. That's the other nice thing about Pearl Jam is they release them all anyway. Official bootlegs. They started that in two thousand. Yeah. Uh, so I have just about every show because yeah. I only went to two, sh- four shows before 2000. So I have pretty much an official bootleg of every show I've been at, which is sweet. There's a couple they haven't released. Yeah, like, that's cool. You know, there's another cool thing I've seen. We were talking about historic things, but like I saw the very last Chris Cornell, Eddie Vedder hunger strike. You know, they'll never be able to do that again. Oh, that's neat. You know, obviously because Chris Cornell's no longer yeah. with us, but I saw the last, uh, the last two actually that they ever did because it was back to back nights and. They did it both nights, but 
Yeah. You know, oh, you, you know, know, um, go, you I go ahead. had a conversation with someone where um, uh, I, I consider Black Hole Sun to be the perfect song, like an actually perfect song. Like that guy threw a perfect game with that song. I just think it's a perfect, perfect piece of music. I love the lyrics. Times Are Gone for Honest Men is one of Everything my favorite. Times Are Gone for Honest Men is one of my favorite lines in the history of rock. I love Super Unknown. It's a top five album for me of all time. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And I yep, love I love Bad Motorfinger. Love Bad Motorfinger. And somehow, you know, Super Unknown was better. I always respect that is when, you know, like I love an album as much as I love Bad Motorfinger. Then they can top it. There's this documentary about Rush, and one of the really cool moments in it is Jack Black is one of the guys who, like, you know, talks during the documentary. One of the talking heads, I guess they call him. He makes this really cool point. He's like, every band is like a bottle of ketchup. He's like, and when they become a band, they open the ketchup and they tip it over, and the ketchup starts coming out. And he's like, some bands, they only got enough ketchup for one song or one album. Or two songs or two albums, and his point was that Rush has been tipping the ketchup out over for forty years, and still ketchup coming out. But I always think about that with bands, like how much ketchup do they have now? Yeah, like when I think of a band, oh, yeah. how much you know, how much ketchup do they have? You know, I was going to tell you too about that one, yeah, that Pearl Jam show that I went to at Ben Arroyo. You know what's really unique about that? It's the last thing I remember before Crohn's disease. It's the last thing I remember before having Crohn's disease. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was like two months before. I, it's a good last memory. Yeah. I mean, I remember like the day that I went to the hospital or whatever. I remember that. But like the last thing, like an event in my life besides the mundaneness right. of school and stuff. I heard um, this right. is something else I want to talk to you about. I heard uh, Emmett on a podcast. He was killing it. Was that fun to do? I felt bad. I'm like, He's I'm only smart. having Jeff on. I should have had no. Jeff and Emmett on. We've done two of them now. It's a guy who does a podcast about uh, sports movies, and we did um, Teen Wolf, and then we did Friday Night Light. Uh, excuse me, We Are Marshall, which is maybe the worst sports movie of all time. <laughs> so I had him watch me, watch it with me, and then we went on the show. It's called Big Screen Sports. It's a very, very nice podcast. I really like it. He does a good job. So, so this is interesting. I know nobody cares about my kids, even my mom, which is another thing you really made my mom upset about when you said that. She was so mad at you. Um, I said nobody cares about your kids. Including your mother, you said. Your mother doesn't even care that much about your kids or something like that. She was so fired up. She wanted I didn't to... say that. Your yeah. mother's the one who does care. No, you said even your mother doesn't care as no, much as you No, most people think. don't care, though. Right. No, I understand that. It was good but advice. I know you want to tell me a kid story. And no. I got to put on my kindness hat now and, and hear your story. No, what I wanted to ask you about, it's more about your kid than mine. But one of the fun things about that I've enjoyed about being a parent is showing movies and stuff to my daughter. So I was curious, like, what movie, like, oh, like I love The Karate Kid, and now Paul loves The Karate Kid, and we watch it together, we say lines together, it's like one of the greatest things in the world. Like, I didn't, mm-hmm. I'm a huge, huge A-Team fan. We watch, she can name all four members of the A-Team. She can tell you who the captain is, who the pilot is, who the scammer is. She knows everything about the A-Team. It's so fun. So I was just curious, like, because of the project yeah. that you did with Emmett, what are some fun things you've shown him? Or am I just in, like... Oh, well, I can tell you, my do- so my my daughter Casey is actually sitting right here, and she's 16 now. And um, she, we recently watched Straight Outta Compton, which I freaking love. I think it's a great movie. And she's old enough now. We can't. My son is 12, 
He's a mature 12. Neither of my kids actually curse, which is kind of weird because their dad curses all the time. But we all watch Straight Outta Compton. And um, my daughter lately, who has a really good and diverse music knowledge, has been listening to a lot of NWA. And I love it. Like, I love talking music with my kids. I love sharing movies with my kids. I thought watching Straight Outta Compton with my kids was a great, great experience. My daughter has a friend who's kind of sheltered, and she watched it with us. And I thought, like, that's a good that's that's a good thing. I don't know if you, have you seen the movie Straight Outta Compton. I did see it. Yes. Yeah, I didn't I mean, mind. I thought it. it was a great movie. Yeah. Like a great movie. I liked it. Yeah, yeah and I, I know it. you're not a hip hop guy. But no, I but I liked it. Movie. Yeah, I enjoyed and, it. Um, yeah. So, so stuff like that, I really love. And um, yeah, we uh, we over the years we watched an absolute ton of movies together. And what I really enjoy, and, and the good thing for you to look forward to, like my daughter's 16, I've never enjoyed her more. I've never had more of an interesting relationship with her. She just started driving, which is a little scary. Right, I've seen like the videos, yeah. Teaching her to drive and talking in our chat. Yeah, it's just great. So as they, as, they, as they get older, one of your great transitions is going from like boring Disney movies and like stupid whatever, over the head three, to like movies that we can actually discuss, even if it's just... I mean, Karate Kid, we certainly went through the Karate Kid phase. Um, I mean, we've done every sports movie imaginable. My daughter's like, I don't want a sports movie. But we've watched all the, we, you know, the We Are Marshall and Remember the Titans. and all. We just watched Rocky Two. I just watched Rocky Two yesterday with my son. It's so um, fun. So it's cool. You know, it's funny because I don't watch mm-hmm. the, that stuff. Like, I let Tammy watch that with her. Like, she loves that stuff. She loves Little mm-hmm. Mermaid, whatever, but I don't. I have no, I can't stand five minutes. I went to see Secret Pets or something with her. I mean, I was falling asleep in the movie theater six minutes. Uh, Secret Life of Pets. Oh, horrible. Horrible. So Um, when it's me and her. I took took my nephew a few months ago to see Transformers, one of the Transformers. Actually, it's probably a year ago now. And uh, halfway through, I was like, man, I'm sorry. I got to sit outside. I can't watch this. (laughs) It was actually making me like sick, motion sick. It was so bad, which is a sign of me being old. And also, like, I just, those movies are so bad. Oh, yeah, I can't do it. And the music, too. I can't. So I just show her stuff I like, and it's hit or miss. Some stuff she does, some stuff she doesn't. Today, we, we, I took her to skating today, and the whole way home, she was, she was singing a metal song by Prong called Snap Your Finger, Snap Your Neck. But she would often stop to tell me that she does, oh. she does not want her neck snapped. She said that's not nice. But she did enjoy How that. How old is she? She's three. Uh, not a movie you're gonna uh, that's gonna do you well. Uh, big movies in our house over the years. One was a League of Their Own, which is just the best sports. Oh, movie I love of all that. Time. Is a great movie. It truly is. It's I so do underrated. love it. Yeah, no, I love it. And uh, it's really good. It's good that you have a daughter. It's a great movie to show a daughter. I mean, or son, but it's just a great movie. Um, and another one that's really good in that realm is uh, that thing you do, which is also a really oh, enjoyable with Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks movie. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. We just watched Ladybugs the other day. That was awesome. <laughs> Do you remember I that? That's with Rodney Dangerfield, where he coaches. No, a, I miss that one. Oh, he he's trying to suck no. up to his boss, so he coaches a women's soccer team or a girls' soccer team, but they stink, and the boss really wants him to win, so he gets his stepson to dress up like a girl and be on the team to help him win, and it's just a whole <laughs> series of like goofy disasters. Um, but I yeah. Miss that. I always wonder, like, what she actually understands, what she doesn't. You know, like, she seems pretty smart for three, but I have no idea if she's smart. Like, I have no clue. 
she could be dumb. I don't know. I only know like one three-year-old. You know what I mean? Like I have no idea. So, um, and every yeah, we always think our kids are super yeah, smart. Every person I've ever met, they're like, yeah, my kid's so smart. It makes me nervous. I'm like, I say that too, but I've met some of these kids that people think are smart and they're yep. little idiots, you know? So, so no, ca- it's funny what we do actually, we'll be like, um, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so I was going to ask you about the NWA movie. Did you think it was a little rough on Jewish people? Like, do you think what, like what watching that is like a Jewish family? No, like, I didn't not, have a problem with it. No. Oh, you mean because, uh, they absolutely the torched that. Um, no, they torched the manager. Like they call him like the Jew and oh, Jerry, Jerry. Yeah. They hate that guy. Oh, it wasn't that bad. Also, it was just a, you know what? It's all, it was like, um, I mean, they kind of broached it because they said that, uh, Ice Cube's lyrics were anti-Semitic. You know, I don't know. I don't, uh, I mean, they kind of broached as an issue. So it wasn't like they were just approving Ice Cube's lyrics, but I actually love Ice Cube. And, uh, I'm willing to overlook something some kid says at 21 years old in a hip hop career. I would be surprised if I've heard more than one Ice Cube song. I mean, solo. I know I know the one no. about the eggs. Um, where he, the good day was a good day. I know I know that. I have no idea if I know it. Oh, anymore. yeah. It's a great song. Oh yeah, that's a great song. I know he uh, he has that sports yeah. league, so he always he always performs that like at halftime to um, try to get people to yeah. care about that. He seems like a really smart guy. He's Very really savvy. he wrote those those movies Friday. He wrote that. Yep. Yeah. He's, I know he's a smart guy. Yeah. Well, good for him. Uh, it's interesting too because I was going to ask you about this because when I was growing up, I was a big Stern fan. Well, I'm still a big Stern fan. I don't like. 2019 stern that much when i listen now i usually go to youtube and listen to like something from when i consider the show to be at its peak i'm like that with wrestling too i love wrestling but i don't watch 2019 wrestling i'd rather watch hulk hogan versus paul orndorff you know from saturday night's main event in 1987 like i'd rather watch that um but when i was growing up i always felt like i was leaned right like i was like a republican I always felt that way, but I always hated, and I still kind of hate, the religious sect of the, you know, the political party, I guess, because they were always, like, the ones leading the boycotts against Stern, you know, and I always hated that crap, and now it seems like the pendulum is swung, and now it's the left that does that, and I just wonder how you feel about that. Like, does Where's that bother left, you? Uh, I'm not arguing with him. What's that? Who do you feel like the left is boycotting religious? I, I'm not a, I, this is not an argument. I just don't fully understand the question. Who do you feel like the left is boycotting religiously? No, 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 no. The religious right were the original leaders of the cancel culture, quote unquote. Right? Like, that's a big thing now, cancel oh, oh, culture. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like, in the 90s, I used to hate, yeah. hate people that acted yeah. like that. You know what I mean? I thought it was the worst part. Made yeah. me want to run from politics in general or identifying as that kind of a person and now i feel like that pendulum has swung and the leaders of quote-unquote cancer culture now are liberals or left-wing or democrat or however you want to describe it and i just wondered if you feel that way as well or and if that bothers you you know i mean no political party is perfect i I mean two answers okay yeah now that i clarified myself i got two answers for you okay all right so i got it so number one um the thing that speaks to the hypocrisy of politics in a lot of ways, there's a long answer, but I swear this, I can do both. No, I, I'm um, interested. I agree with you. Like the, and 
like, like the GOP used to be the party of like, um, morality and decency. And it was all about, you know, like we need to cursing. We have to get rid of cursing and we have to get rid of so-and-so. And it's about Christianity and blah, blah, blah. Right. And then this guy who's like having sex with porn stars and paying them off. Right. They were a large guy. And everyone's like, yay. Yeah. And then totally. And then on the left, I believe me, I, I actually, funny, I didn't understand what you were asking, and you might be surprised to hear this. I agree with you 1,000%. Like, every time someone offends you doesn't mean you have to freaking shut them down. Every time you think someone is, like, doing something awful doesn't mean you have to shut them down. I actually think the perfect example, so we live, um, we live out here by, um, oh God, I'm having a brain freeze. Casey, what's the chicken place right here? Chick-fil-A? Live, Chick-fil-A. We okay. live by Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A. Yeah. And... Chick-fil-A, so yeah, right. Chick-fil-A's yeah. food is great. Yep. And Chick-fil-A is, is very, very conservative. The ownership's very conservative. Like, you know, their, their stances on gay rights, not the best, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And it's always like, you need to boycott Chick-fil-A. We need to boycott Chick-fil-A. And I'm like, you know what? Who made your table? Who made your table in your, in your kitchen? Or, I don't know. Who made your dishwasher? Or, I don't know. Who, Sam, Samsonite. Okay, what's Samsonite's position? Do you know what the CEO of Samsonite? Like, you can't be outraged over every product in your house, over everything made. It is impossible. It is impossible. So, like, I can speak out against Chick-fil-A. I don't have to buy their chicken. Like, I don't have to go there. I can do all that. I can speak out. I can hold a boycott at Chick-fil-A if I want. But, like, not everyone is going to agree with you on everything. It's just part. It's just a reality of life. Not everyone is going to agree with you. And just because someone disagrees with your stance doesn't mean you have to always boycott them or be furious at them or try to get them whatever, shut down you know, and like, fired and all that I feel stuff. Like, yeah. I don't want Chick-fil-A shut down. I don't even want Fox News shut down. I mean, I don't like some of the things they do. I find some of it vile. But, like, do I want them shut? I always say, like, I always say this. I don't want to be responsible for someone losing their job Ooh, with yeah. very, very rare exceptions. Me neither, yeah. You're like, I don't, I don't want to be responsible for you losing your job. So, like, Chick-fil-A, my local Chick-fil-A closes down. Well, freaking 100 people lose their jobs. I don't want that just because I don't like their position on abortion. If I don't want to eat there, I won't eat there. You know, but like people are that the actually pro-life, in a way, that's a fascinating issue for me. I know I'm going on a tangent here, but like I am strongly pro-choice, strongly pro-choice. But I get why people are pro-life. Like I'm not offended by you, if you are or whoever, being pro-life. I actually get why people think abortion is wrong. I totally and completely understand it. I don't agree with it, but I can appreciate the position. And I just think like we have gotten to a point and a lot of people on the left do this where if you disagree, it is like, and the right does it too. I mean, everyone does it, but like, if you disagree, it is a moral deprivation. And we just take that shit way too far. Like this kid who had a sign at game day said like, get me beer. And, and he, he got all this money, like a million dollars or something. And instead of keeping it, he could have said nothing, kept the money. Instead, he's like, I'll give this to charity. And then, like, Anheuser-Busch is like, oh, we'll, we'll match whatever you get. We'll give that to charity. It was like almost $2 million they're giving to this children's hospital in Iowa. And some reporter, and I have no idea if this guy's yeah. left-wing, right-wing. I have no idea who this guy is. So I'm not trying to blame this on anyone. Yeah. But this jerk goes back on the kid's mm-hmm. tweets for, like, seven years, finds two tweets that yeah. are borderline offensive and maybe they're really offensive. I, I honestly didn't read the tweets. Just kind of heard the story. And gets this kid fired from Anheuser-Busch, like almost torpedoes the charity effort. Yeah. And then they found tweets in his closet and now he's fired. 
Like, how stupid was that whole charade? That's Why? Well, also, like, it's crazy. Like, as you, you know, there are things I've tweeted in my life. I don't delete tweets almost ever, but, like, that are kind of ridiculous. And there are articles I've written. If, if I ever decide to run for office, and every now and then I think of it, like, somebody, some operative would be very wise to go back to the writing I did at the Nashville, Tennessean. And they'd be like, this guy wrote a column saying that private schools shouldn't have prayer. This guy wrote a column saying whatever, blah, blah, blah. And like, you have to allow that people change and people grow and people's opinions at 20 aren't the same as they are at 40 and at 30 aren't the same as 50. And uh, like I saw an interview today with Michael Vick um, and he was freaking tremendous. It was one of the best. Michael Vick to me is just the perfect example of this. Like, he did something really awful. He did two years in Leavenworth and he really seems contrite about it all. And I am willing to just accept the fact that this guy screwed up, did some awful things, changed his life, has changed his life yeah. and isn't the same guy and isn't the same guy anymore. And we have to allow people to, and we also have to allow that people aren't like, we are not social media has reduced us to single issue entities or two dimensional entities. And like some guy who's pro life, isn't necessarily a bad guy. Some guy who wants to own a bunch of guns isn't necessarily a bad guy. You may disagree on an issue, but we're so quick to just, dis- myself too at times, to just dismiss people based on a comment or one single, like when they called up the tweets of that, um, what was the Milwaukee Brewers pitcher? The guy who had the, the tweets when he was like 16. You know what uh, I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't think of his name. I know exactly what you're talking about though. I don't know. He's a good pitcher. I can Hater picture him too. Uh, yep, but, um, yep. You got it. Yeah, with the hair, with the yep. mullet. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not saying what he said was great, and what it certainly wasn't, and I'm not saying I necessarily would want to hang out with that guy, but, like, you have to allow that a guy at 15 or 16 or even 18, like, you just say stupid stuff when you're young, and you're undeveloped, and you don't know everything, and maybe, like, everyone around you is using gay slurs, and you just think it's okay. Like, you have to allow for people to grow in life and not always judge them by something they did when they were young. Well, and you know what? When I was in high school, there was a couple of gay slurs we threw around and, but we were never, we never thought of it as like, we just used them as like a way to tease your buddy. We weren't real, you know, we weren't thinking about the insensitivity of it at the time. You know, it was a little bit ignorant on our part probably, or like the word retard. You know, I would never call someone a retard now. I guarantee I did when I was 10 or 15 or 16 I didn't have Twitter yeah. then, luckily. It wasn't a thing, yeah. you know, but you probably could have killed yeah. me on that. The one interesting yeah. thing about this stuff, though, it doesn't seem to stick as much as it used to. Like, I, I guess Trump has sort of broken that wall somehow. Like, nothing sticks to him, you know? It's like, kind of funny. It's kind of Actually, what I find funny is, like, stuff sticks to other people a lot more than him. That's not even a political issue. Like, Right. No, you're right he about does that. The, he does the Access Hollywood tape. He does the access Hollywood team with that Billy Bush. That would have downed Billy someone. Bush just got a job. Right. Yeah. Poor Billy Bush. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. crazy. He's yeah. like, every week someone is getting killed for stuff that Trump does. And Trump somehow, I don't know what it is. It's almost like if I throw a million things at you, you can't focus on one. You know? It is spreading. It's kind of amazing. It is spreading, especially to politicians, you know, where stuff just doesn't stick to them as yeah. much anymore because. Everyone's so dug in. Like, we're definitely going to see this in 2020 when we get down to two, right? Whoever it is, you know, probably almost almost certainly Trump versus whoever is on the, the left-hand side. There's yep. going to be five, six, seven things that come up. 
but people are going to have to push him aside because they're going to be so dug in one way or the other, either on we have to replace this guy or we have to keep this guy. You know, one way or another, so d- dug in that that stuff's just going to fall away. You know, it's tough to get anything to stick to anyone. And anymore. maybe that's a uh, maybe there's something good in that a little bit. Like, um, I'm trying to think of a few examples. You know, like when Barack Obama was running. And there was a whole thing with Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Right, remember? Yeah, I remember he that. Was, he was kind of a racist and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And that stuff was glued to Obama, right? And, like, maybe that stuff... I'm not, I'm not using that because I liked Obama. It's just an example to enter my head. Like, maybe that tendency we had to take something and focus on it, focus on it, focus on it, focus on it, zoom on it, zoom on it, write 150 stories about Barack Obama's relationship with Joe... Like, maybe that stuff actually has little to no bearing on what kind of president a person will be. So maybe if we stop hyper-focusing on really trivial issues, you know, seemingly trivial issues, um, maybe that's a good thing. So maybe in some weird way, Trump is contributing to sort of less hyper-focus. I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of hoping, I guess. I think no matter how bad his presidency or really any presidency ends up being, as you move further away from it, there are positive and negatives, you know, that come out of it one way or another, whether they're about policy or about the way things have changed. And like sometimes, you know, it's as simple as, well, we won't go down that road again, you know? So it was a negative to that person, but it turned into a positive in the world because we learned from that mistake. You know, I don't know. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, regardless of who the president is, when, as time goes on, you learn from, that piece of history and things change because of it. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. I think I, uh, I used to agree with that statement much more than I do now. Unfortunately, I, I, I would love to agree with that, but I feel like there's a, a lot of damage. It's not going to be fixed. Specifically with this, as far as the way we conduct ourselves. Oh, how we conduct ourselves. Well, I I think we'll never get to a point where we'll have like another Kennedy, right? Like we're never going to universally love the guy ever again. Probably. You see, that's so heartbreaking, isn't it? Like, yeah, I it's would, terrible. Because um, I love that Kennedy. That really breaks my heart. I'm a huge Kennedy guy. And you know what? I feel like I feel like Reagan, for the most part, had that. Yeah, he and won I'm 49 states. Guy in history, but like he won 49 states. Right, in exactly. Yeah, like I can appreciate. Or 84. And I feel like for a little bit, Obama, Obama had a little of that, like not to the same degree because we're not the same country that we used to be, but like. You know, he really did his first campaign when he ran in the hope and blah, blah, blah. Change, like, yep. mm-hmm. He really galvanized the nation. And I don't know if that's possible anymore. I just don't know if that's possible anymore. And I wish it were. But um, I, always, I don't know. I, I don't always, know. It I, sucks. I, yeah. No, I was just going to say I'm really fascinated by the second Bush because in the era of Trump, I don't, oh, know, yeah. I don't know if it's like, a, I agree with you. oh, man, he was look at how good he was compared. I don't know if it's that like compared to what we have now, or if as we've gotten away from it, we there's something about the way his presidency is quote unquote aging. That's been relatively positive. That fascinates me. So I remember how hated he was at the time, but I also remember the days mm-hmm. and weeks after nine 11, how like when he throws out that first pitch at the Yankees game, the world series, like I what, was at that game. what's his approval that rating game. that day, right? We would have all as a country, like ran through a wall yep. for him that day. Right. Will we ever have that again? If that happens, if something like that happened in five days and 
miraculously we find out that one of the great things about Donald Trump, or the one great thing, is that he presents himself as an unbelievable leader in that time of crisis. We're suspend- suspending disbelief for this. Would everyone come together like that again and be willing to run through a wall like we would have for Bush? Even though Bush ended up being a really hated no. guy, you think about that that period of time. Um, I don't think it's possible ever um, again. I don't know. Maybe you disagree. I think a few interesting... Well, I think what's interesting... See, I think one thing that I wish was more of a positive than it has been, because I was really hoping this would happen. Like, I hated Bush as a president. I'm sure you liked him more than I did. Um, he was my least favorite president of all time, right? right. And I was a guy who freaking loathed Bush. I could, I, I just loathed him. I thought he was an awful, awful president. I hated the people around him. I hated Cheney. I hated Alberto Gonzalez. I hated John Ashcroft. I could not stand any of them, right? Yep. And what I have learned, and you're, not too, you're never too old to learn something, is um, I disliked his policies, but not there the is guy. a difference between right. disliking someone's policies. Yeah, right. and also like, I never thought, like, I know Trump. I, I feel like I know too much about Trump from the USFL book. Like, I feel like I truly, truly, truly learned all, so much about him and the way he thinks and what his motives are. Like, truly, in a way you do when you dig into something hard. And I don't think, I think Bush woke up every day thinking, how can I make this country better? And I disagree with the method, methods, and I disagreed with a lot of the results. But even then, I never thought, I never thought, this guy is trying to undermine America, or this guy is all about making money, or this guy is all about just, he just has a huge ego, and he just wants, like, I just, in hindsight, I just thought he was a shitty president, you know? And I feel like that's what's changed about the way the left, especially, thinks about Bush, is we still think he was a bad president, but nobody thinks he was evil anymore. It's more like he was just a bad president, in our opinions, you know? And I even think that, if he was a 10 out of 10 bad, I, I think that in retrospect, he's becoming like an 8 out of 10 bad or something like that. You know, like I feel like maybe a 7. Yeah. You know, I feel like yeah. he's that it's a it's fascinating to me. And what's going to be really interesting to what I really want to learn about myself going forward is and I've told you this before as a guy hate Trump. I think he's an awful human being. I hate his Twitter account. I wish it was deleted. I hate the way he's a counter puncher that he can never just shut up and be like the better man in the room. You know, he's always got a counterpunch and I hate all that shit, but he's governed relatively conservative, conservatively in some of the policies I've liked. I'm interested when he's gone for 10, 15 years, if I'm going to look back and say, I was a fool about that. You know, I'm curious to think like, am I going to be right that these policies were good, that I like the judges he appointed on the Supreme court. Is that going to be a long-term good thing for the way I believe the country should be governed and the values that I hold? Because I'm open to believing I could be wrong. Because I, I see how bad the guy is, and I'm wondering if I'm letting my core principles cloud the policy, which I feel for the most part has been relatively conservative and for the way I live and the way I want to live has been, for the most part, good. Not all great, but I'm, inter- I, I'm interested to see I how feel like, out. Uh, I think your kid's going to be 23 years old, and the climate is going to be such a freaking disaster that people are going to say what was going on 20 years ago. And you're going to look back to Trump cutting every environmental protection under the sun, ignoring climate change, um, suing California because California tried putting emission standards on cars 
and your kids are going to look back just like my kids are going to look back and be like, what the hell were you people thinking when you had a shot at corralling this thing a little bit? Yeah. I really, truly, truly. Here's where we're going to disagree. I can't get past that. Like I can't get past that. If he, if he loses, is it, or isn't the president for any longer than three or four years, one way or another. Mm -hmm. And, Let's say it's Elizabeth Warren or Biden, whoever the next president is. Presumably, they're going to go yep. right back to the way it was in the Obama era, right? Or even further. We need to get a lot farther than that. Okay, so oh. I would assume that that would be a really important part of that president's agenda. And then when I look at the issue of climate change and the world and how big the world is and how much time has elapsed, it's hard to blame it on one country in four years. I think the imp- that's like a dime in the bucket, I think, in the problem. One country, four years. What mm. What is the damage of the climate being done in China during the four-year stay of Trump? Oh, God. Here's where I disagree with you, and this is why. Okay. So when Obama was, when Obama was president, one of the great criticisms that you would get from the right is the world doesn't view him as a leader. You know, he's not leading. America is supposed to lead, and now we're following. That was a big freaking reframe from the right. Uh, America leads and the world follows. And there is a lot of truth to that, America leading and the world following. Um, and when we put pressure on other countries to do right, other countries tend to follow. Right now, we are basically sent, we're putting no pressure on anyone to do anything right about climate change. And the only way you get freaking stuff done um, as the United States is you got to give, I mean, you're right, like... Asia is a disaster when it comes to emissions. Um, specifically, China is a disaster. India is a disaster. It's a freaking disaster. But when America does nothing about it, it lets the other countries completely off the hook. And the only way anything is ever going to get done about this stuff, like I can't believe when I hear people say, like, why should America do it and no one else does it? Like, that's the argument. Why should America do it and no one else does it? Like, no, that's why we should do it, because we're freaking the United States of America and we're actually supposed to be the world's leaders. And when you don't do something, it gives allowances to everyone else not to do it either. So I can't stand, I'm no disrespect, like, I can't stand when people say, look, look around the world, blah, blah, blah. Well, fuck the world. Like, we're actually supposed to be the people on the cutting edge of everything. And to see other nations turning to freaking just wind power as an example, and our stupid ass president saying that the windmills are too ugly and they can't cause cancer, it's shameful. And it freaking drives me crazy because I actually want my kids to live a happy, healthy life. And it it kills me. You maybe misunderstood me a little bit because I'm not saying, you know, I wasn't. But that was a good rant, right? That What's was that? A good rant. Yeah, that was good. And I, I mostly I, rant, agreed though. with a lot of it. What I was saying is your initial point was we're going to look back on these four years and say this one guy in this one country did so much harm to this, what I view as a century long problem for the entire world. You know, I feel like if he put. Even if he put six drops in the bucket and most presidents put one or two, it's just such a big bucket with so many drops. It's hard for me to look back and say, boy, that one guy in that one four-year period really fucked it up. Especially since the things he says often don't reflect what's actually happening. We have hundreds of windmills in Buffalo. They're still turning and running despite him saying they're ugly. There's not one less windmill here. He's a moron. He is a he is a. No more no, for sure. We, we we agree about that. We also agree. You know what's that, crazy? Wait, yeah. As I just want to say one thing. Like, yeah. What's crazy about Trump? What I what I actually find really fascinating 
Number one, in many ways, his approval rating should be 10 points higher than it is. Like, the day that guy gives up Twitter is the day his approval rating takes a jump of two or three points. Right? God, yes. Yep. If, and if he, he easily could have been, like, he doesn't, he has zero convictions. Like, he actually has no convictions. His convictions are making money and people loving him. Like, those are his convictions. If he had decided early on, I'm going to be a leader in, environment, in the environmental movement. Like, you know what? People will love me because I will be, I'll be the conservative who's also, envi- I'll be Teddy Roosevelt. I'm going to be Teddy Roosevelt, and I'm going to freaking lead the environmental movement. I'm going to be a conservative thinker, conservative principles, conservative courts, but we're going hardcore, clean the planet, right? He would have fucking been a hero, and people on the left would have actually sort of, he would win this election in a landslide. I think he's going to lose this election. If he decided to take the environmental cause, if he decided right now, if he held a press conference tomorrow, he'd be like, I've been thinking about it. And you know what? I climbed, I've been talking to scientists, and they're right. And I was wrong. And let's just go for it hardcore. Here's what I'm going to do. Blah, 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 blah. He'd win. But he's such a freaking moron, and he's such a narcissist. He just can't do it. I think he might lose. Um, he might win, though. I know that's, the word, that's like such a non-statement. Uh, but I do believe that because mm-hmm. – and I also think impeaching him would be a huge mistake because I, I don't think he's going to get voted out by the Senate, certainly not for this phone call. I just I think it's a huge tactical error. I think he it's going to end in a I saw what a disaster it was for Republicans during the Clinton administration. Disaster. Mm, different circumstances. Fine, but it was it didn't I work. Think it's a very different circumstance. Well, I guess I think this is going to I think I it's a bad it's a it's a mistake cuz he's, he's not going He's not going to get out and then he's going to use it. And it's he's going to really rally rally his his but base. Use it for what? His people are Look what they anyway. did to me. Look what they did to me. Look at the witch hunt. Look at how against me they are. Ugh, give me a break. Yeah, well, he look. already has those people. Whoever's falling for that's already voting for him. All right, it's getting late. Let's uh, let's do one more thing. What else do you got going? Tell me something I didn't know about you. All right, try. Give me a scoop. I got a weird one for you. All right. I got a weird one for you. I'm you excited. Ready for a really one? I'm okay. very excited. Okay, so as you know, probably my... Um, my first Laker book, Showtime, is, is in the process of being made into an HBO series. Yes, you know that's that, awesome. Right? Yep, it's awesome. Did you know that? Yeah, I did know that. Okay. Yep. And, um, yeah, and I went, to the, uh, I went to the writer's room one day, and it was, uh, it was like the best place ever. It was like free food and collaborative. And, you know, book writing is boring. People I mean, not boring, but lonely. And I was in this place, and I was like, God, this is great. I would love to be in a writer's room. So long story short, I haven't told anyone this actually. This is the first. Here's a big, big hit exclusively. Nice. One day per week, I drive from my house. I get up at four thirty to five in the morning, and I drive from here to Santa Monica, which is a pretty good hike. And there's a show on Fox Sports One. Fox, there you go. <laughs> uh, Fair Game. Okay. Uh, have you ever seen Fair yes. Game? It's an interview show. Yep, I have. And, seen um, it. Yeah, and uh, one day a week. I work as a writer on the show. I've oh, never that's... done TV writing before because I really want to try TV writing. That's so, so fun. That's that is so fun. Yeah. Something you, different. You know what's pretty cool is yeah. I, Molly Knight. You know Molly? She wrote that really great Dodgers book. I do very well. She was in the. She was writing that uh, TV show called The Pitcher or something like that that was out for a bit. She was a writer on that. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Yeah. Do you enjoy it? Has she been on your show? Uh, yeah, when she, when the book came out. She was um, really great. She was nice. 
I love that book yeah. too. That was a really good yes. book. Molly's cool. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, very good. Um, I do I enjoy it. Yeah, I don't, I hate the drive. It's like a two hour in traffic drive, but it's like um, it's kind of funny. I'm like uh, I'm like the old man in the room. I'm 47. I'd say the average age is probably 30. <laughs> and um, I feel like uh, I feel like there's some things that come with experience. You know, like a certain understanding of whatever sports dialogue and sort of the language and questions to ask. And it's been kind of cool. Actually, it's been really enjoyable. So I just, I just like sitting there talking and chatting and writing. Yeah. It's a good one day a week sort of break for the time. Two things I thought of before I let you go that if I don't talk to you about, you know, when I hang up, okay. that's what I'm going to think about in bed. I hope I gave that enough attention. I think that's right. amazing that you're in that right. That's so fun. I want to hear Man, I, I want to I'm hear... concerned about you thinking about me in bed. <laughs> I'm comfortable with that. No, it's the interviews in general, not just the ones with you. But you oh, know, okay. any interview okay. I do, the first thing right, I think about when I'm done is what I didn't ask. Um, okay, go ahead. Okay, so this I was thinking about. You know, I told you I was watching uh, the Karate Kid with my daughter. So this is an actual yep. thought I had. I was thought about you and Casey, your daughter. She's 16 now. Mm-hmm. Does she date? She is. I was. Uh, yes, she does. She does. Okay. So this is what I was thinking that if yeah, I was Jeff, does. if I was Jeff Perlman, this is what I would say to Casey. Because I know I'm going to be the worst about this mm-hmm. stuff. Date. I'm going to hate it. But I would say, okay, you can date, but only if the date is at golf and stuff. I would approve of any golf and stuff date. <laughs> <laughs> All other dates are off, but golf and stuff, that's fine. Thoughts? Yeah, it doesn't really work that way, but that sounds great. <laughs> Do you, could you at least? Doesn't work that way. Could you at least encourage? Like the guy comes to the door, hey young man, nice to meet you, Timmy. What are you doing tonight with my daughter? Have you considered golf and stuff? Would you at least do that? Yeah, because it's still there. Think, you know, it's I a think real I get place. Made fun of in the car. It's a real place, though. Yeah, it's still no, there. I, I think. Yeah, no, I know. My wife and I went I on our honeymoon. Well. We went. There. I can try it. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, I, just, I still don't think it would go over well. Really? Yeah. Why wouldn't they like golf and stuff? What do they do instead? They'd be like. I mean, kids today don't date like you think either. They just hang out where they're on their phones. It's not the same. It's not like they're that many destinations anymore. It's a different world. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea. I haven't been on a yeah. date since 1999, but so I have no clue. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's not gonna happen. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, guy can dream. I actually told a lady. What's I'd... your second part? You said you had two. Oh, the other thing was just we were talking about how you went to that. You had to go to that bad fraternity. And when you were telling me that yeah. story, I was going to, yeah, I was going to bring up how when my brother was at Yale. He was in a, um, secret society, uh, which I thought was the mm-hmm. st- stupidest thing. Um, and there's, I think yeah. there's like eight secret societies, but he's in one, he, he was in one called nine ball, which actually started because this is, this is funny. This society started because Yale said they couldn't have all male societies anymore. So this one is like, like there's only eight at Yale, but they're nine ball. They're like the ninth. They're like an unofficial one. And that's, that's the cool one. And when my brother was in senior year, when he was graduating, 
we were me and my dad and my brother, but not my mom, were allowed to go to the house or whatever for like an hour. Wow. Yeah, and then we had to leave. Wow. It was the it was so dorky. That's quite the honor. Yeah, and when, and oh, and when we were yeah. walking to this place, this kid is coming towards me. Okay, this is the last thing. We gotta hear in this because I need your opinion. So this kid's walking towards us. We stop. My brother's talking to him. Whatever. He's like, this is my brother, Steve. Oh, hey, this is... I forget what his name is. Yeah, nice to meet you. All right. Yeah, we'll see you tomorrow. I'm going to be in this room at this time. You know, whatever. You're talking about graduation. We walk away. Yep. He's like, yo, you know who that is? And I'm like, no, who? He's like, that's JFK's grandson. And I was wow. Like, I was like, oh, no shit. That's cool. Yeah, so this is what I asked him. I was like, how good of friends are you with him? He's like, yeah, pretty good friends. You know, we really good friends at college and everything. And I was like, did you ever ask him if he saw the Zapruder film? And he said no. And I just, what do you think? Is that, is that a valid question to ask? My brother thinks it's horrible. I don't really think so. Yeah, I, I think horrible. there's no way I wouldn't I ask agree. him about it. You think it's horrible as well? I feel like you're asking, have you ever seen a video of your grandpa getting shot? Well, that's exactly no, what I I'm asking. That one. That's right. exactly what I'm asking, but I mean, it's legitimately yeah. historic. That's a bad question. Is it? Even if you're good friends? Like, how close? Like, let's say that that kid's going to get married someday. At what point can his wife bring it up? No, she can bring it up. I'm saying, and you could bring it up if I were doing an actual article on the kid. I think that's a fair question. But I feel like that's kind of a rude question to ask a guy if he's seen the video of his grandpa getting shot. Rude for me, but rude for my you know, brother? You don't know that. Right, rude for me. I agree. That I could so. never have asked him that. But even like his buddy, you don't get to a point where it's cool to just talk about that? Um, I mean, I guess it depends on the relationship. It depends how close your brother is with him. Yeah, probably not Probably not close healthy. enough. Probably not close enough. But I was, I'm fascinated by that. I mean, he's had to have seen it, right? Yeah. A good one, but all right, Jeff Perlman. Uh, I would say the odds are pretty good, just because he yeah. he had to have seen it. You know, it's like I tried to avoid that hideous yeah. video of the non-pass interference call in the NFC Championship game last year. Like I try with my life to never see that again. Oh yeah, and I see it every week. So yeah, right. Sorry, man. Um, try being a Jeff fan. Well, yeah, it's funny because could you imagine you would have ever traded with me? Ever, like in 1996 or any time before 2006, you would nope. never, never, never signed up to trade with me. Um, but all never. right, Jeff Perlman, he's at Jeff Perlman on Twitter. He writes great books. His latest one will be out soon about the Lakers. USFL one's still kicking ass. I still yep. see it like in the top 50 of iBooks all the time. I don't know if that does anything for you or not, but no, I, I didn't know that. I, no, I didn't even know it's true. That's cool, though. Yeah, your books are always on there. Sometimes it's because they go on sale. So, like, if a book goes on sale, you'll <laughs> jump up the list. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing against the books. Yeah. I mean, people That's are like, cool. oh, shit, three bucks? I'll buy that. No. I buy stupid books on there all the yeah, time because they're totally $2. I never read them, but I have, like, 30 books. I don't books. care if people read in the library. I'm happy if people just read it. I don't care. Borrow it from a friend. It doesn't matter to me. He has a podcast called Two Writers Slinging Yang. I wonder if this is our longest appearance on the show. It's one twenty-six. Might be. That's one twenty-six where I live. I need to go to bed. Is there anything else yep. you want to promote? You need to get a life, man. Uh, uh, no, I think I'm good, man. I appreciate. Uh, I always appreciate. I want to be number one on this list. Can you give you know? my Quaz a score from one to ten? 
relative to the other 400 quasas? I thought it was a very honest and sincere quasa. I would give you a solid eight and a half to nine. I'll take it. I'll take that. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right, very but, few tens. Very few tens. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I understand. I like to – I rate chicken wings. Kyle Brandt was a 10. Kyle Brandt. I like Kyle. Kyle He's Brandt been on this show a few times. He won't come out anymore. Oh, Kyle's the best. But I still Kyle, like him. I loved when you were on his show. 20 Questions when you did that, the short-lived Kyle. show. Yeah. Kyle. Man, that yeah. was a great podcast. Yeah. Kyle's become a good friend. I love Kyle. Yeah, he's a good Kyle's dude. Kyle's been in this house eating, uh, eating my – even my wife's homemade salted peanuts. Yeah. He's in New York now. Don't they do that show in New York now, though? The football show? The morning yeah, we show? We basically shifted lives. Yeah, you guys switched California coasts. And he yeah. New York. yeah, he's a good yeah. dude. I like. Well, now I found like, one of your friends. Yeah, very. So you, you normally you tell me about your friend is Seth Davis, who's my dead last ranked uh, sports writer. Well, I'm good friends with Wertheim. And Wertheim, yeah, you're right. You met your wife at his wedding. Huh. I know. All right, buddy. Yeah. All right. We'll I'll, talk. I'll talk to you later. Best to the wife and the kids. See you, See you later. I was a little too tall. Could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hauling it down. She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sitting way up high I want to thank Jeff Perlman for being on this podcast. I always love having Jeff on. Quick book club update. In a second, we're going to take a break and come back and talk to Albert Chen for the first time since 2012. His book, Billion Dollar Fantasy, the high-stakes game between FanDuel and DraftKings that upended sports in America is the topic. Albert's also a senior editor at Sports Illustrated, so we do talk a little bit about the magazine and kind of what is going on there. One last thing in the book club update I want to talk about. It's pretty wild. What the hell is going on with this Bob Stoops book? So I mentioned it last time. Let me go through the timeline, okay? August 8th. I email the publisher. It's a guy named Adam. And I tell him who I am. I tell him about I'm interested in covering the book and the book club. Uh, and he gets back to me on the 14th. He says, hey, Steve, forgive the delay. Yes, I'll definitely have two copies off to you, as, off to you ASAP. Let me know if you have any other questions. All the best, Adam. Okay, great. I'm promoting the book. 9-4, September 4th comes around. Still haven't heard from him. I say, hey, Adam, I can't thank you enough for the kind and quick response. I know the book is out next week, and I'm anxious to start promoting it and talking about it with my listeners. But I still haven't received the book, so I just wanted to check and make sure that it didn't get lost in the crack or I made a mistake or something. Thanks for getting back to me. So he writes back to me on 9-6. And he says, it was my mistake, Steve. I have you set up now. Expect it soon. All the best, Adam. Okay, so I email him on 917. Hey, Adam, I won't keep bothering you on this. I've been promoting the book, but I can't go any further because we haven't gotten the books. Just let me know if you're still interested in moving forward. Thank you, Steve. No response. So on Monday, I message him. Adam, I don't understand what has happened here. I promoted the book in good faith for three weeks while you assured me on two separate occasions that books were on the way. Did I do something wrong? 
I don't understand what happened. Steve. He writes me back. Tuesday. Me neither. Give me your address once more. I'm from Buffalo. I wouldn't skip you. Must be something weird. A. So, that was Tuesday. It's Friday. I still haven't seen the book. I'm hoping they're coming. So, there's a Bob Stoops book that we may or may not uh, go forward on with the book club. We'll see. But we're going to finish up Albert's book in a second. And there's this Scotty Bowman book coming out called Scotty by Ken Dryden, which I really want to cover. I'm going to reach out to that. Our friend Ed Sherman has an unbelievable book about the Big Ten that looks incredible. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to promote that, he said, at the end of October. And there's a couple other books I'm looking into about adding. But let's take care of the business hand for right now. Man, I'm a mush mouth. Damn it. Let's talk about Billion Dollar Fantasy, the high-stakes game between FanDuel and DraftKings that upended sports in America by Albert Chen. Our second guest today made his sportscaster's debut way back in 2012. And seven years later, he's here to promote his billion-dollar fantasy book. He's a Yale grad, a bulldog, and he's nice enough to join us today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Albert Chen. Welcome back, Albert. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I can't believe it's been since 2012. Yeah, you know, a lot has changed since then. The world has changed. Uh, sports media has certainly changed a lot. Um, a lot has kind of gone down since then but yeah it's great to reconnect seven years man That's unbelievable nice. sports illustrated has certainly changed i mean back then in 2012 were you a senior writer then probably i was definitely 2012 i was writing i was covering baseball and college football and um yeah it was um definitely a different world at SI. I mean, so now I'm doing primarily editing, kind of like running those two beats now, actually. And, you know, also worked on this book um, sort of on the side and whenever I could have time. But yeah, SI has, has changed in a lot of ways. I mean, in some ways it's still SI. <laughs> but um, yeah, seven years, um, a lot can change in, in seven years. Yeah, so... You're considered the senior editor at SI, right? That's technically your title there? I am a senior editor at SI, um, so and I do primarily uh, editing on features, you know, for the magazine and, you know, doing a lot for the website now as well. And, you know, essentially um, directing our baseball and, and college football coverage and doing a lot of front of the book stuff, but... Yeah, I mean, like, right now, really just managing a lot of writers and, you know, a lot of the writers that you know and have had on your show. And, um, you know, it's a it's a, it's a a great job, I mean, you know, to be able to work with guys like Tom Verducci and Ben Ryder, Stephanie Epstein on baseball, and then, like, just kind of generalists like S.L. Price and, and Greg Bishop. It's um. It's uh, it's definitely keeps me on my toes, but it's a lot of fun. And, yeah, it's... um. You know, as we're kind of try, trying to figure out, like, what SI is going forward, I think one thing that's always remained is just doing 
great stories. And I think we get into some trouble when we lose sight of that. But I think we're, um, you know, just like everyone else facing challenges in sports media, but um, at the same time, just kind of staying true to what we are also. I remember just about right before the sale was official, I had John Wertheim on. And I believe his title's executive editor, technically, I think. I don't know who titles, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I asked him, I said, you know, what do you think aside is really good? And how do you think, you know, when the magazine is sold to whoever it's sold to, you know, how do you think you keep that the focus and accentuate that out? into the future. And he, you know, he's basically said that, you know, he thought what SI did really good is probably the same thing you probably think I would assume is, you know, you can get great access. It's a, it's a, it's a strong name. You can do great features, you know, almost sometimes the longer a story is an SI, it's almost like the better it's going to be, you know, um, the time that the writers take and, and the, I think, you know what I mean? Just kind of the depth of an SI story and, uh, what you can learn about a player, even a player that's maybe been your favorite. You know, like Drew Brees has been my favorite player yeah. since he became a Saint in 2006. Greg Bishop, I think you just mentioned him, writes a cover story last year. There's four, five, six, seven things in there. I had no idea about Drew Brees. You know what I mean? I think that's one of the strengths that I saw. Now that the sale's a reality, something that's happened and you guys are moving forward, do you think that it's sort of proven true that that's what SI is good at and that's what you guys are going to kind of focus out, focus on as you kind of move forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for sure. I mean, look, I mean, we're going to continue to do like those, those, you know, big Drewby stories. And at least, you know, Greg's story, I think, was actually, you know, just a, a big deep dive into a guy that we thought, you know, we knew, but like he was able to bring some, some new things to the table. And I think that's, that's what we want to continue doing. I mean, you know, I, look, I mean, I think that, you know, we're, a sports media organization that, you know, is trying to figure out how we fit into the way, you know, the world is now. And I'm sure you and I consume sports completely differently than how we did in 2012. I mean, look, I mean, our brains have been rewired um, in a way such that, uh, look, I mean, do people have the same attention spans to sit through a 5,000 word story? Um, no, I mean, I, certainly not. I mean, it's, you know, podcasts are certainly going to be a big part of what we do. And that's a, you know, that is long form storytelling just in a different, different medium. So it, it really is. I mean, look, we want to create stories that people are going to be talking about. And I think that when you're, you know, we have a great, you know, video department, great podcast department that we're building out and doing a lot of things. Now the danger is, you know, you're spreading the organization too thin. I think we have to be aware of that. But I think that at the end of the day, like you said, I mean, it's it's going to be, you know, getting, you know, we can continue to do stories like the Drew Brees story because, yeah, we're Sports Illustrated and we can get access. But we also have to push ourselves a lot more in terms of finding creative ways um, and new ways to to tell stories. And I think that, um, you know, I think, you know, you and I are on the same page is like, if it doesn't matter if it's a long form story or if it's a at eight episode podcast, if it's a great story, it's a great story, but we just have to be continually, continuously evolving and just thinking about, 
you know, how the world is changing and just being kind of smarter and, but also mainly more nimble about what we're doing. One more thing in this, then we'll move on. We'll talk about the book. Uh, in 2012, you mentioned like media habits in 2012. One thing that I was championing then uh, was the iPad version of the magazine. I just thought, wow, this is going to be such a game cha- changer for SI because, you know, for one, it would go up every basically Tuesday at midnight or so. Whereas if I wanted to wait for the magazine, that would be in my mailbox like Thursday morning. So it's almost like two days early. You know, really, because if I hadn't gone to bed yet on Tuesday, you know, I could get it done. Um, And it just it looked so great. And you guys were integrating links and just really good. I feel like maybe the focus on that sort of faded. Did you guys find that it wasn't the game changer I thought it might be? What about the digital version of the magazine and how that can be a big part or not a part of the future of SI? Well, I mean, it needs to be really kind of the main focus. I mean, it's you know, like you said, I mean, the iPad, there were a lot of resources put into that. And, you know, I think, you know, I was actually a writer, kind of full-time writer out of the office at the time. So I'm not sure exactly sort of, you know, don't have a great idea of what the exact challenges were, but I think it was, it was very challenging sort of creating, you know, what you're essentially having to do on a weekly basis with a, you know, much smaller staff is like creating um, a completely different sort of, you know, experience for readers um yeah i mean the story is the same but there needs to be a lot of thought about like what how does this how you know how does this sort of translate you know into an ipad experience and it really is not just a matter of you know putting that story into you know an ipad format so you know i think like on the one hand there's a lot of potential there but you know on the other you know there there's also a lot of challenges and so you know, I think that there are things that you can do on your phone and your iPad that you just can't in a print product. Now, some people still like to have that print product, but look, I mean, I think like the focus is really, it has to be, you know, how can we tell stories that really sort of use the, you know, kind of maximize, you know, the upside of just these experiences on, you know, on these various devices. And I think that you know, part of that is just purely technology and just understanding like what we can do. And I think we have a much better understanding in 2019 versus 2012. But it kind of goes back to this idea that we just need to be sort of, you know, I mean, more nimble. And, you know, it's one thing to, you know, report out a story and spend months and months on it. You know, I, I you know, I'm working with writers in terms of just like, okay, well, maybe this is better as a, a podcast. Like maybe this isn't necessarily, you know, what we would traditionally think as like a bonus story, which would be sort of a long, you know, 8,000 word takeout, but maybe actually like this is, um, this is actually better as a, a podcast. And I think that like, you know, as we sort of dive into stories and make that part of the, the process here, like when we're in meetings talking about ideas, um, sort of on the front end thinking about, okay, well, actually, this is a better thing if it's, you know, something that is more sort of video oriented. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, 
there are there's a lot of opportunities here, and I think it's it's a matter of you know the the great thing about what we do have going for us is that we still have you know a lot of great writers here who understand really storytelling and why um, it's still such a powerful thing. So it's it's a matter of just kind of understanding and and finding new ways to tell these stories and. You know, I'm sure we were having these conversations in 2012, but I think that now in 2019, like, okay, we actually have teams now that can execute these ideas in a real way. And look, we've done sort of long-form podcasts. We have, you know, one in the works that I think is going to be really, really good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's definitely... Uh, it's definitely a new world, but I think um, in a lot of ways, it's 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 really it's it's pretty exciting. For my ninth birthday, which was way back in 1989, I got a subscription to SI and a subscription to Sporting News. Somewhere along the way, Sporting News dropped off, but for over 30 years, I've been going to my mailbox on Thursdays, and Sports Illustrated's been there. You can just say yes or no on this. Do you think in five years there's still going to be something in my mailbox every? Well, it's not every Thursday anymore, but you know what I'm saying. Do you think that this, the physical magazine is on borrowed time, so to speak, or do you think it'll always be there in some way? I think, I think in five years you will still be getting, if you're a subscriber to Sports Illustrated, you'll be getting a magazine, a, a print product. I think that um, we've done something wrong if that print product is exactly what you're getting now. I think that you know, maybe the frequency is less, and I think, like, maybe it's a different sort of product. I mean, it needs to be a different product, and every day we come to the office thinking about, like, what that should be. And, um, you know, I don't think that it's necessarily going to be arriving every two weeks now, but I do think that in, you know, something will be arriving. I don't know that mailboxes are going to exist in five <laughs> years, so who knows? Right. But, I do think as long as, um, you know, there is a post office and there are mailboxes, you will be getting a pro- an SI product. Um, but I, I do think that, I mean, you know, it, it needs to be something different and, and reimagined. I mean, as, as all things sort of like in this industry need to be. Awesome. All right. The sports guests are here with Albert Chen and really – that was nice of him to spend a few minutes on that. But I brought him in to talk about his book. It's called The Billion Dollar Fantasy, the high-stakes game between FanDuel and DraftKings that upended sports in America. And I I have this, like, app on my phone that it, like, flashes back to your social media over the years and you, like, can read how stupid you were in 2015 and what you... And the other day I found this, this post I had posted. It was, like... Does anyone know if there's a way to win a million dollars, you know, real quickly by just picking football? You know, remember they had those commercials during <laughs> football? They were on like every 18 seconds, and that just kind of made me laugh. And I was like, oh, we're, we're going to be talking about FanDuel right, yeah. and DraftKings uh, this week with Albert. Let's start with this. Why this topic? What, how did you get around to saying, all right, I'm going to write a book about, you know, FanDuel and DraftKings and their drama well i mean it all did come out of 2015 and that fall you know i think like trevor noah had that line during that fall like you can't turn on your tv set without seeing a zombie kardashian 
our fantasy football ad. I mean, and that's, you know, every, it was actually every 90 seconds. So your 18 seconds wasn't that far off. It was a FanDuel or DraftKings commercial in September 2015. So it, you know, like for a lot of reasons, it's sort of like an insane story. I had, I'd done a story for Sports Illustrated um, that ran in the magazine in um, early 2015, and it was just kind of, a look into this odd industry what was at the time this odd sort of niche industry like kind of a weird story where it was like five you know people in in scotland co-founding this fantasy sports company and and then so we ran the story and um i think it was like during super bowl um weekend 2015 you know, last week of January or whatever it was. And then so, you know, like like you often do when you write stories, you just kind of like, it's done, and then you just set it aside and just kind of like watch from the sidelines what sort of happened. And what happened was they be, um, tra- uh, FanDuel, you know, just totally exploded and then just engaged with this crazy rivalry with DraftKings. And, you know, when I wrote the story, DraftKings was like totally sort of the second place uh, company in the space, not even really a, 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 a serious threat to FanDuel. And they were, so FanDuel and DraftKings were both valued at over a billion dollars over the, over the summer of 2015. Then you had this insane ad war. And then, um, then they just got into just a, <laughs> just a pretty bizarre and just absurd sort of legal, um, just just a massive sort of like uh, New York Times scandal and then like legal problems that ensued from that where they were actually shut down. So, you know, it, it was just like, it was a national story. I mean, it was all over, you know, in in the aftermath of that New York Times story. I mean, it was, it was a big thing. And so, you know, naturally, I think I'm sure not just my book agent, but like book agents everywhere and book publishers everywhere thinking, as they often do off of news, like, okay, well, this seems like an interesting story. Like, is there a book behind it? So I had a conversation with my, um, an agent who I've been talking to about doing a book, um, you know, potentially on other subjects. And, you know, we had a conversation about this particular one because he knew that I wrote that Sports Illustrated story. And, you know, I knew the founders a little bit, knew a little bit about their um, their backstory, which I thought was interesting, but didn't really know a ton about. And I was like, yeah, sure, this seems like there could be something there. Now, the problem with jumping into a story like that is you have no idea where the story is going to take you. And it's kind of an insane, and it's just not a way I think books are done. Um, in fact, my agent, um, our conversation, I, I remember very vividly in early 2016 was, you know, he more or less said, and I've never written a book. And he was just kind of like, um, yeah, this is great. Like maybe something we should, you know, really think about, but I've never had a first time author, um, dive into a topic with this much uncertainty. And he's been, he's, you know, worked with a ton of SI writers and done a ton of books and, is well established in the industry, and I, you know, that was not the most encouraging comment. You know, it wasn't like, a, you know, oh, it sounds like a great way to spend the next two years. But it's true. Like, I mean, I dived into this like not knowing where the story was going to take me. So, but I did 
pretty much sign on in 2016 and then sort of away we went and it um sort of took um took a lot of twists and turns but that was um sort of the process at the very beginning i like i love hearing that this sort of evolved out of an si story i I kind of look at si sometimes like saturday night live like oh you know adam sandler had this big sketch on saturday night live or dana um who am I thinking of? Uh, Dan Aykroyd, he had cone hats. Let's make it a movie. You know, like, uh, oh, Dana Carvey, Wayne's World, let's do a movie. Now sports is like, oh, Ben Ryder wrote about the Astros. Time for a book. You know, like, I love that part of it. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, I remember, like, maybe, like, around 2006 when Howard Stern went to Sirius. I remember someone, mm-hmm. I was talking to someone, like, at a family party or something about it, and he's like, you know, the interesting thing about, you know, satellite radio is buy stocks in both of them because eventually they're going to be one you know one of them's going to they you know fall off and the other one's going to buy whatever and you're going to have this big conglomerate and i've always kind of thought that about FanDuel and DraftKings. that like eventually there'll be fan kings or something you know or draft duel uh but it seems like they have sort of maybe we're jumping ahead a little bit in the story but it seems like they have kind of maintained their independence and and been able to thrive. And you talked about how in the beginning DraftKings wasn't really a competitor. Where do these two companies stand kind of like as individuals? And do you think that one day they'll go to the satellite radio and like create dual kings? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, Fan Kings was actually a serious, because um, they were, they were potential, they were, I mean, it seemed like they were definitely going to merge in 2017. And, you know, if you talk about sort of like if you're writing, if you happen to be someone who's writing a book, that's a great way for the book to end. Right, is when the two companies merge. What a great Perfect. bow! Yep. Um, unfortunately, the FTC blocked that merger, and um, which I mean, I think there are pretty obvious sort of legal reasons for that, and uh, you know, but um, and but during that whole process, I mean, they yeah, I mean, they were talking seriously. About, I mean, all, basically all the people that I sort of highlight in the book and, and follow through the course of the book, you know, they were already, I mean, I know like they were talking about what was, you know, what their new positions would be at the company, that combined company, like yep. what the name of the new company was going to be. They were having meetings with each other. So, um, so. Uh, so that was, that was a surprise when they, you know, the FTC blocked this, blocked this merger. I don't, it's not going to happen now because like the, the market now for these two companies, which, you know, at the time was kind of like this small thing, daily fantasy sports, which at the end of the day was like actually not nearly as massive as, as everyone sort of thought it would be, or that thought it was, um, it, you know, these two companies are now sports gambling companies going forward, and so they, they realize that they can coexist. So there's there's really, I mean, barring like a cataclysmic event, like <laughs> these, these two companies are on their own course right now, and, um, and you know, there there is no reality where I don't think we're going to be, you know, having to, uh, um, you know, make fun of a, a fan king's... Um, combined company because I, I, you know, I, it's so funny, you know, you mentioned that because like, you know, the serious sort of example, like would come up all the time. And that was, that was kind of the natural course for the story. And, but it just didn't happen. Like a lot of things in the story, just, you know, there was an unexpected twist that, 
that happened that just sort of derailed, you know, what we thought was was the story. So one of my favorite parts of the book was it kind of took me back because I remember this one season. So here's my relationship with fantasy sports. You can tell me if, well, not fan, but uh, daily fantasy sports. I've always shied away from the bigger games because I feel like there are people who spend more time and use computer algorithms. and pro- They have too much of an advantage over me. But what I do like to do is get, say, 12 friends together on a Sunday. Everyone put 10 bucks in, pick a team. The winner gets, you know, 120 bucks or whatever. And I remember the one year we're doing this every Sunday. And then all of a sudden we got into this thing. We're like, well, is it legal this week? You know, like, are they going to accept my deposit this week? Oh, nope, we're shut right, down. Right, right, we're right. shut down this week. And then the next week, it's like, oh, we're back up. Uh, you know, right. we got a ruling. And then the next week, it's like, oh, we're down again. And I was like reading that playing <laughs> out like that roller coaster in the book. And I was like, I remember running these draft. I remember like, you know, like I'm on page like, you know, 88 thinking like, I remember this day. This was the day that we couldn't do it. And and what about the kind of roller coaster and the legalities of it? it's legal and it's not legal and that was my that was my kind of favorite part of the book, just because I kind of live that as a consumer. Yeah, no, it's totally insane. I mean, I think you know what you're talking about is like when they were shut down in New York, right? And yeah, yeah, I'm in, in New York, late 2015. Yep. Yeah, exactly, and New York and a, and a handful of other states too. And then you know, I um, I actually was. I was in, so for reporting on the story, like I, you know, traveled all over and I was in Edinburgh that summer of 2016 and like the CEO at the time, Nigel Eccles was just like, he kept getting like texts during, we went out to dinner one night um, in Edinburgh and I was just like hanging out with him and his, his, um, his wife, who's also a co-founder and he was just getting texts from, you know, his chief legal officer. And it was just like, and totally open question Look, I mean, if you and your 11 buddies or whatever kind of like, oh, it's it's legal or it's not legal and like it's changing every, I mean, just imagine if you're like the CEO of the company and you have basically the same questions about, you know, what's going to, what the status is of the company, you know, the very next day. And, you know, he's getting texts where, you know, it just didn't look good for you know, FanDuel in 2016, um, it, it just seemed like what was what we were headed for was essentially that these companies would go bust or just be shut down and, you know, for a number of reasons. I mean, it is, you know, the ending of the book um, and where we are now is 2019, where FanDuel is actually positioned really well for the future, you know, this future where, you know, sports gambling is going to be sort of mainstream and legalized, you know, it isn't yet in New York, but, you know, we're sort of headed there. It's just kind of a matter of time. And it's kind of nuts, like how, at, at how many moments through these last few years where, I mean, you know, part of the story is just, you know, the ups and downs of being an entrepreneur and a founder of a startup. And it really is kind of a startup story at heart, but sort of through the eyes of, um, you know, the founders and, and particularly the CEO, but just like waking up every morning wondering if you're going to go bust. And, you know, look, I mean, you're you're a player on FanDuel and you're wondering this, but it's also like everyone who is actually working at FanDuel was wondering this too, because if you're shut down in New York, um, you know, for a long, long period, um, I mean, then you're, you're in big trouble because right. there are more users in New York than anywhere in the country. 
It's crazy. I highlighted this one part in the book, and you had mentioned that the the um was it the New York Times I think had the article kind of you know talking about the insider kind of the insider kind of research and the way you know insiders are winning these big contests with inside information or whatever. And I highlighted this one kind of uh, quote in the book from a Wall Street Journal um, part where it says here it says let's cut to the chase playing. Daily fantasy sports games for money is gambling, and it should be regulated. I should know over the past few years I've made millions of dollars playing these games, etc. Here's what kind of stuck out is like, is what happened here kind of that they kind of settled this and said, okay, it is gambling, and let's regulate it, and let's make a lot of money together instead of fighting against each other. And now like in states like in New Jersey – uh, I'm not sure if it's FanDuel or DraftKings, but one of the two like basically runs gambling in that state. My friends just gushed to me. My friends in New Jersey gushed to me like it's the greatest thing to ever happen to gambling. I have this app, and as long as I'm in the state lines, I can you know bet on whether or not Drew Brees is going to drop his towel on third down. You know, it's like just this insane thing. But like, was that really <laughs> kind of the crux of the story? Just kind of like coming to that under like that realization, and then kind of like going from there. Well, I think the main, you know, I think like what the the story is, is how we got to this moment in 2019, where I think when we look back even 10, 20 years from now, I mean, it is a significant moment where, you know, we had a Supreme Court decision in 2018, struck down, you know, passed the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, which was essentially the federal, you know, ban on sports gambling across the country outside of Nevada. So, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, what I hope that the story is, is just, you know, you can look back and say, okay, well, this was the moment um, where things changed. And, you know, a larger theme of of the story is like startups and, you know, how much of it is like, you know, uh, uh, right place, right time, how much is, you know, kind of luck, um, how much of it is, you know, purely timing. And, you know, these guys, uh, at both companies, FanDuel and DraftKings, like, you know, had, had you know, great visions and, you know, really a resilience that I think, like, certainly is is um, is is a reason why they survived and other companies didn't. But at the same time, like, there was a lot, a lot of larger forces at play. I mean, these two companies raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and, and also, um, you know, had this significant... Supreme Court decision happened where here in 2019, I mean, I live in Manhattan. I mean, I, you know, on Friday nights, you know, I, every weekend we go to New Jersey because my in-laws are out there and I have a five-year-old and I'm just like, all I want is childcare on the weekend. So we we cross the George Washington Bridge and drop off my five-year-old with my, um, with my uh, in-laws, and and it's kind of like, uh, great, we, my wife and I can go out, but you know what? I can also, like, put down 25 bucks on the slate of NFL games. So, um, and it's FanDuel, it's DraftKings, it's William Hill, it's a bunch of apps, It's um, and it's it's crazy. I mean, look, I mean, as your friend probably knows, I mean, New Jersey is is, is the future. If, if you want to know what's, what, what the world is going to look like, you just go to New Jersey and... Right. I mean, it's true. Like, I mean, I had, you know, I, I, the, the kind of like interesting Monday morning, uh, you know, sports betting, betting story that was interesting to no one in my office that I just wanted to tell everyone was that 
I put down like a $2 bet on, at FanDuel for a 13-team parlay. The only game that I missed on was the Giants, uh, you know. Tampa? Giants, uh, Tampa game uh, where you, uh, that guy missed a field goal. I mean, I would have netted $750 damn him. on that. Yeah, it was, uh, but that's, that's kind of what it, you know, I can cross the George Washington Bridge and put a stupid $2 bet on a game, which is kind of insane because, like, it's it's not only that, but, like, it's also, you know, U.S. Open qualifying matches and, like, um, you know, you can bet on just events in every Major League Baseball game as it's happening. So that that sort of that's the future and that's where we're at 2019 and the book in some ways is sort of like an explanation of like how we got to that moment and in a lot of ways it was kind of you know accidental it was like right place right time for for these companies and these particular people but um it was but that's kind of the nature of business and startups and and yeah they're they're very well positioned for like the world um, you know, of, of sports gambling, which is, I, I think, going to be, you know, huge, certainly, going forward. I can see you watching that game. Yeah, delay game. Good call. Moving back a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Give a little bit more space for that kick. I like that. <laughs> then the kick's missed. Why did we take that delay game? What are we doing? You know. Um, I know, I know. The book is called Billion Dollar Fantasy, the high-stakes game between FanDuel and DraftKings that upended sports in America. Albert Chani's been really nice to take a bunch of time with us. Let me get you out of here on this, and I kind of mentioned it before. Um, I like to play these games with my friends, uh, but I feel less confident when I'm putting the money into something with a lot of people. Um, And I don't necessarily feel like I'm being cheated, uh, like maybe I was worried about in the past. I trust the the, uh, the regulation now, and I trust that it's just not worth it to them anymore. Well, you know, what a big business they have why would they cheat on one contest or something but what i do worry about is just the pros you know i feel like when i'm going into those contests i'm going into it against people uh that do this for a living and they they put in 300 lineups in a day and they run spreadsheets and algorithms and numbers that i couldn't possibly comprehend uh am i being paranoid or is that kind of the way the game is played that the big contests are being won by pros um, and all the rest of us are kind of trying to pick up scraps. And I'm talking, obviously, about the traditional kind of daily football or baseball-type games here. Yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 a losing proposition for you and me. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any question about it. I, I, I mean, I and I think that that's why there is very limited upside in terms of the daily fantasy product. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I actually, you know, I spent a lot of time with a lot of these pros. They were they just became like a smaller and smaller part of the book because like, you know, the daily fantasy industry in 2019 is a smaller and smaller part of the story. It really right. is it's more about gambling. gambling, but in terms mm-hmm. of, in terms of like daily fantasy, no, there's no question. I mean, you are, I mean, I don't want to say you're wasting your time, but like, I do want to say that you're up against pros who do have algorithms. And I spent a lot of times with um, these pros who, um, are making a living off of doing this. And, you know, I, what I will say is like, I mean, I, I played a, a you know, fair amount of daily fantasy and I, I, it's just a matter of like, you know, I am just someone who likes, you know, 
some skin in the game, like on a Sunday afternoon watching NFL games, like if I lose 15 bucks, like on a Sunday afternoon, it's not a huge deal. I mean, I, you know, like, but the, you know, the, the chance that I have at like winning sort of like the $10,000 or $20,000 first prize. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to happen, but like, sure. Why not? You know, like it's just another way for me to just, you know, make, my Sunday afternoon a little bit more interesting, but the danger is like when people kind of like you and me who don't really know what they're doing, you know, think that they have a chance and think that, okay, well, if I spend, if I, if I invest a lot of money into this, then I have a chance. Well, the odds are really dramatically stacked against you don't, if you're, we're, we're talking purely about daily fantasy and, right. and that's why this, I mean, here we are in 2019. It's not, I mean, it hasn't really, I mean, 2015 was sort of the height of it. Like, it's really not that much bigger than it was in in 2015. And there's a reason for it, because, like, their play was all about getting guys like you and me and your buddies to play Daily Fantasy. It's just not happened, because we would keep losing if we played. So that's definitely... But look, we talk about New Jersey. I mean, Daily Fantasy is, like, 10% of the business for these daily for, you know, FanDuel DraftKings right now, it's all about sports gambling. And that's really what this is all about. Daily fantasy was sort of this odd thing that was kind of a bridge to what essentially now is going to be a, a massive story kind of going forward. And that's, that's what their play was. You know, I don't know that they knew that exactly, but that's, that's a sort you know, when we look back on it, that's what daily fantasy was. Well, the book is called Billion Dollar Fantasy, the high-stakes game between FanDuel and DraftKings that upended sports in America by Albert Chen. Uh, it's doing great on Apple Books. I saw yesterday it was like in the top ten of the sports books. You can get it there. You can get it on Amazon, of course. You can get it for the Kindle or the Nook or your iPhone or your iPad. Or you can go to Barnes & Noble, pick it up, maybe grab one from the sports section for Albert and pull it to the front. Put it right in the front, like cover up like the Bill O'Reilly, whoever Bill O'Reilly's killing this this week. <laughs> Put it in front of that book, so it's right in the front for Albert. Um, yeah, look, the book does a great job too of kind of as we talked about here, kind of covering the evolution of this from those annoying ads and daily fantasy to being these big gambling conglomerates in states like New Jersey. Um, and it was really a fun read. Thank you, Albert, so much for doing this. Uh, I believe it's just out at Albert Chen on Twitter, correct? Yep, Albert C Chen. Yep. Um, anything else you want to plug? Uh, no, just check out the latest issue of SI. We've got a lot of great stuff going. So no, this was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Let's not make it so long this time. I don't know why we yeah, went seven, seven years. years who between. knows where the world. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but thank you so much for doing this. Uh, go Bulldogs, right? Let's go. Yell. Uh, hopefully uh, go it's a Bulldogs. Good, yeah, yeah. Good hockey season for them this year. And, uh, I think they're hosting the big game this year against um, Harvard, so hopefully they can win that because Harvard is just absolutely hideous. We can agree on that. I think everyone in the world can agree we on can that. We can agree yeah. on that, absolutely. So, all right, Albert, thank you so much for doing this with me. Thanks for having me. I would like to thank Albert Chen and Jeff Perlman for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, 
You can find this episode of the Sportscasters and all of our episodes on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports casters. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Give us a five-star review if you can. I did notice uh, we do have some less than favorable reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you can help me out with a five-star, that'd be that'd be pretty sick. Thank you. Uh, also, don't forget about my buddy Peter Winson, who's in Alaska right now. His podcast, Greetings from Allentown, uh, is one of my favorite wrestling podcasts in the world. You can find him on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. He has a new episode this week, which is really cool about wrestlers appearing on the Arsenio Hall show. Uh, so definitely check that out. He and I do a podcast called the Adams Division Podcast, and we have a new episode of that out where we finish our top 10 sports teams. Um, and you can find that on the Greetings from Allentown feed, or you can find it on the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed. Place to Be Nation, another one of my favorite wrestling podcasts in the world and i'm going to be on that podcast monday uh you can find more information on twitter at place number two b e nation uh, also their website is place to be nation all letters.com uh, and you can find out information about the 80s music tournament which is a disaster it's like all michael jackson songs it makes me want to puke i don't know what people listen to it's just so gross um, but check uh, check that that site out. I love that site, and I, I love those people. And a shout-out to my friend Jenny on there is starting her own thing called the Jenny Position. Uh, so there's you can find information on the Place to Be Nation Twitter, uh, or you can search on Facebook, the Jenny Position. I know she started a Facebook there. She's really talented. She's really sweet. She's a great mother. Um, I look up to what a great parent she is, and I hope, that this new project is nothing but a success for her. Uh, so please check that out. Uh, last thing, Adrian Dater, our good friend. He was on the show last week. You know his website is coloradohockeynow.com. You can find him on Twitter. He's at Dater there. Or you can follow the website at colhockeynow. All right. A bunch of plugs there. I want to tell a quick story about the disaster that has been me trying to purchase uh, the iPhone 11 Pro. All right. So this is what I do. I pay a little bit more every month to be able to make 12 payments on my phone. And then after 12 payments, I can turn the phone in and get a new phone. So basically, it's like a, you know, a program where you can get a new iPhone every year. I like getting the new iPhone every year. I know, technologically speaking, it's probably not necessary, but it's just a little thing in life I enjoy. I like having the new phone. Some people hate iPhones. They think Android is better. That's fine with me. I'm not this kind of guy that like would fight with you about what you think is the best phone. I just like iPhones. Uh, and I've been trying. So every year on a launch day, I go to the AT&T store uh, near my house. It's a smaller one. They don't get a ton of business, I don't think. Uh, and it's usually easy to get the iPhone on launch day. But because this year... There's so many different, there's three different phones, the iPhone 11, the iPhone 11 Pro, and the iPhone 11 Max. The Pro and the Max are basically the same except one screen's a little bigger, which is too big for me. So I like to get the, the iPhone, I got the 11 Pro 
256 gigabyte space gray. Basically the same phone I have now, but instead of 10s, I upgraded to 11 Pro. Now, since they have all these different phones and all these different sizes and all these different colors, they really didn't ship phones to the stores. Uh, they just... It was a ridiculously, horribly handled launch. And when I got there, I realized I would have to order it, which was fine. It was Friday, they said, so we could go now. And they said it would be there in two days or so. And I believed them. Um, and I went through all the stuff and bought the phone. And I go to pay... And it was $92. You have to pay for the tax on the phone. It's $92. And, of course, they don't take cash. I have $100 in cash. They won't take it. So I have to go across the street to CVS and buy a green dot card. Put $93 on that. Go back across the street. Uh, purchase the phone on the green dot card. Finally get that done. Took like an hour and a half. And um, so a couple days go by. And Monday we get an email saying the phone is shipped. Fantastic. So I get a shipping tracking thing on UPS, and it seems like it's going to arrive Wednesday. And um, all of a sudden Wednesday, the phone goes missing. So basically what happened is someone at UPS stole my phone. Uh, if you look at the tracking on the UPS phone thing, it goes from scanned in on the 23rd in York, PA, it arrives in Harrisburg, PA on the 24th, still fine. It arrives in Syracuse on 9:24 at 10:12, still fine. Then at 9:24 at 11:24 p.m. in Syracuse, the merchandise is missing and UPS will notify the sender. So, my phone is stolen by someone at UPS. So, I I have to do this. I have to call AT&T and try to get them to accept the findings of UPS. Cancel that phone. Order me a new phone. And ship it out. So that took almost 90 minutes. I was on with four different departments at AT&T. Before finally they got me to the right person. Who got the notes from UPS. Filled out the forms on his end. Canceled the old phone. And now get this, it's going to take five to seven days for them to ship me a new phone. So I have no idea when I'm going to get it. My brother Anthony bought his phone on Monday. He got it today. So he he went in two days later than me, got his phone today. I'm still waiting. My brother Greg got his phone today. We'll see when he gets it. That brings me to the second thing I wanted to talk about. I know I'm bending the rules a little bit of one more thing, uh, but this is important to me. Uh, on September 10th, it was my brother Greg's birthday. I've done a couple shows since then, but I think one time I may have done football picks, and I can't remember what one last... Oh, the Drew Brees injury. Uh, and I didn't get to something that I really wanted to do, and that was just talk for a minute about being Greg's brother. Uh, and having Greg as a brother. Uh, Greg was my first brother. And he was born in 1986. I had just turned 6 years old. And one thing I remember the most about my mom being pregnant. Is we were going to be born really close to each other in terms of birthdays. And I did not. And I mean did not want him born on my birthday. I knew I was going to have to share my mom. And my toys. And everything else in my life. But I did not want to share my birthday.
Uh, luckily, he wasn't born on my birthday. He was born on September 10th. And we got into a little bit of a rocky start. My mom would want me to feed him, and he would torture me. I would put the bottle to his mouth, and he would throw it on the ground and cry. I would pick it up. He'd throw it down. I'd call my mom. My mom would say, he's just hungry. And I'd say, Mom, if he's hungry, why doesn't he take the bottle? Why is he crying? Why doesn't he throw it on the ground? Just be patient. Just be patient. So he would torture me every time. And I was just a kid. And I was getting into this like new family. For the first six years of my life, I was the show. You know, uh, I was the first grandchild. I was the first everything. I was the whole show. And now there's this new kid. And I had this new stepfather and this new stepfamily. And I had this new brother. And I didn't know how I feel about it. And it's crazy to me because I look back now. And I realized that being a brother has been like one of the greatest things in my life. Um, and being a brother to Greg has been so great. He's such a a really sweet, sweet kid. He's got a really, really great heart. And I admire that about him. He's got this unbelievable ability to never forget a person. You'll be with him somewhere and he'll be like, hey, it's so-and-so. And I'll be like, who? And I'll be like, don't you remember... When I was in third grade and you were in sixth grade and we had the bus stop and there was that one kid who we picked up at three bus stops later and his name was Jeff, that's him. And I'm like, who, what? He's just unbelievable at remembering people, but he's such a sweet, sweet heart. He's a very sensitive kid. Um, his feelings are very much like on his sleeve. Uh, and he's a really, he's one of these guys that guys like to be friends with. Like he... You know, if you go out to a bar with him, he's got like a new buddy. Like he, I don't know if it's, if the term, if he's a man's man, I don't know if that's it, but he's just a real social kid and he gets along with people really well and he treats people really well. Uh, and he's a great dad. Um, his son, I always think of the Pearl Jam line, admire me, admire my home, admire my son. He's my clone because my nephew is an absolute clone of my brother, Greg. And I always tell like my wife, like, hey, do you want to know what Greg was like when he was three years old? Look at his son. That's what he was like. That's how he acted. That's how he looked. That's how his fingers were. You know, that's how he had red cheeks, just like everything. And he's just a great dad. And he was a dad for a whole year before I was. And he's a great husband, too. And he was a husband for a whole year uh, before I was. And I, in those two years, watched him be a husband and be a father. And I learned from him. And that was kind of a role reversal because being the older brother, I always tried to be the one to hopefully project some way of, you know, something that he would admire or watch or learn from. Uh, but in those two years, I learned to be a husband from him and learned to be a father from him. And he's great at it. And he's made me a better father and a better husband. And I just really love being his brother and I love him and he's a great great kid and he's on Twitter if you want to give him a follow he's at Greg Day 19 um, and we've had some great times we played on roller hockey teams together and won championships he's been to Pearl Jam concerts with me I've been able to share that passion with him we've been to a Saints and Bills game together we went to a Saints and Steelers game in Pittsburgh he went with me he went with me to Cleveland to a helmet concert in a dive bar he had no idea who helmet was uh, but he had a lot of fun at that concert. Don't let him tell you any different. 
Uh, and that's a great memory for me to be there with him. But to just be able to share my passions with him. This last year has been a tough year for me. I've talked to you guys about that. And my brother Greg has been so great. Whether it's helping out with my daughter or coming to see me in the hospital. He came to the hospital um, one night just to bring me some drinks. So I'd have drinks overnight that I liked. And like a little snack. And he didn't have to do that. Um, but all it took was one call and he was there in like 20 minutes. Um, and it's just stuff like that that, you know, has just made being his brother just such a such an honor uh, and such a pleasure. Um, and I feel, you know, blessed and lucky to have him as a brother. Um, and like I said, he's just a great dad and a great husband he's a great son he's always looking out for our parents if they need something he's first in line if I need something uh, he's always there to do it we watched so many of Anthony's games together he was the one who was next to me when Tracy Porter intercepted Peyton Manning and I jumped into his arms and when Anthony's team won the national championship and the clock was ticking down from 10 to 1 he was the one who I hugged first and when Anthony's career seemed to end at Yale in a double overtime loss to Harvard, uh, he was the one that I hugged. But he's a great brother, and I love him. Love you, Greg. <laughs>